Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good afternoon, Alf. Um, hold on. Hi, George. Hey, Hi, George. good to see you. So, uh, real privilege to have Alf with us today. Um, we've spoken. We met in Michael Guyard's uh, space a couple months ago. And I've become a huge fan. Great minds think alike, as they say. Um, I think we have a very similar worldview, so I don't want to turn this into an echo chamber. But to the contrary, I think yours is a very important voice that needs to be heard. Many people are just, um, not, they don't, they, 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 they didn't get the plot. They, they didn't get the storybook. And so I think you have a very differentiated point of view, um, which has been, it's quite useful. It's been quite correct. It also happily coincides with my own view of the world. Uh, before we get into a conversation, um, just, it's been a week since we uh, lasted a space. We had a great space a week ago, uh, last Thursday with James Ferguson, um, gave a terrific uh, tour de force of the world and his view that you know, inflation is not going to go away, um, that rates going to have to go a lot higher, talking his book, talking my book, um, leaves him with a very negative view on risk assets, as is the case for myself, and Alpha is the same, although how we get there might be a little bit different. Just a couple quick comments, um, as we haven't done a space in, in, in over a week, um, you know, we had a couple days good market action into last week and right away people get all excited and you know game on again um so you're saying there's a chance i think as i keep saying it's a fool's errand to try to figure out the the, the, the gyrations on a um weekly a daily or a weekly basis um you know as john roke one of the best chartists on the street out there has put out that, 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 that chart and they keep retweeting it. The fact that counter trend uh, rallies are, are a feature, not a bug of a bear market. It's just enough to keep people sucked in. To remind everyone in the 2000, 2002 NASDAQ bust, when NASDAQ fell 78%, 47% of the trading days, the market was actually up. There were 15 counter trend rallies over 10%, 10 counter trend rallies of over uh, 15%. So, you know, I, I don't I suck at short term trading. I'll just tell you that right now. I get all these nasty tweets from people. Oh, gee, how's your, you know, Tesla short working for out for you? Coinbase short short working out for, for you. I mean, some of us have been short Coinbase for the last 75 percent down. So nice try, guys. Um, the bottom line is, I think this is only the end of the beginning. I think we have a long way to go still. Um, I don't want to get too overly bared up. I don't want to. I want this to be an open conversation with with, with Alf. But bottom line is, I'm still very negative on risk assets. Um, I'll I'll go into some of my my deeper views a little bit later on. But we're really here to to, to listen to Alf. Uh, Alf is uh, well known to those uh, who are paying close attention to it in FinTwit. He's been um, really a voice of clarity and reason and consideration. Um, He's been right. It's not just been right, but he's been right for the right reasons. And his methodology and his and his point of view, uh, how he gets those conclusions, I'm a huge fan of. And so for me, it's a real pleasure that Alpha has been uh, so kind to spend 45 minutes with us this morning or this afternoon to share his views. So Alf, welcome. Um, good, good, to, good to catch up with you. Uh, for those that um, didn't get a chance to listen, oh, Alf did uh, oh, oh, a podcast with uh, Wealthion, which was posted just in the last few days. There's two segments to it, and it's quite useful. Uh, if we don't get to cover all the material here today, 
I urge everyone to go look at those wealthy on um, uh, interviews. But I really want to make this interactive as well. So I'm going to shut up and let's just let's just get let's just get at it, Alf. So Alf, um, you've been so right. Um, you've been right for the right reasons, as I say. For those people, though, let's try to put ourselves in the position of the average person at home who, you know, is looking at this, whereas before we had the everything bull market, now we have the everything bear market. And it's like, oh, it has to go, it has to stop going down, doesn't it? I mean, shouldn't we be buying? And where do you think we are in your framework, either in terms of time or price? How far along do you think we are in this whole thing? Do you think... You know, obviously, it all gets crucially to the central banks and the Fed and inflation and having to break things and tighten financial conditions. So either in terms of price or time, you know, they always say give people time or price, never give them both. But could you just give context to sort of your overall thought process and how much further you think this has to run in terms of time or price? Thank you, Alf. Thanks, George, for the very kind introduction. Uh, it's a pleasure to have such an endorsement, especially coming from you. Um, I always say that two things. First is I don't know exactly what's going to happen, and I never assign a 100% probability to any outcome. I don't have a crystal ball. By managing money, I understood that I need to assign probabilities and look at facts and look at models and make up an hypothesis. And if I'm wrong, I need to stop out. That's the, the very first thing I want to come across. I'm never always right or wrong. Um, what the other thing I want to come across with is uh, instead of setting up the stage for why I have a certain view, I would rather come and uh, present my top two trades at the moment that are sitting on my book. Because managing money and talking to you know all the investment banks and strategists out there, one of the first questions in every meeting that I always ask them was, what are your positions? What shall I buy? What shall I sell? Because that tells you a lot about what people really think rather than some macro blubbering they can do for an hour without telling you anything. So instead of doing the macro blubbering for an hour... I'm oh, start... oh, Alf, Alf, Alf. I mean, we don't get to bullshit each other for an hour about what the Fed's going to do and our star and swaptions 12 years forward correlate to the sunspots and the moon. I'm so glad you said that, Alf. There's so many what I call macro bullshitters. That's all they talk about, and then you're done listening to them. Their, their lips are moving, they talk a lot, but they say nothing. So th thank you for that, Alf. Thank you. <laughs> let, 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 let's just go straight to the trades. Yeah. How are you trying to make money, and, and what do you think investors listening to this call, what should they be looking at? Thank you. Yeah, welcome, George. So uh, I have two books. One is a uh, medium to long, long-term book, and the other one is a more levered, tactical, long-short global macro book for nimbler investors, let's say. So if you're a nimbler investor, my top two positions right now are short the S&P 500 and short BTP, which are Italian government bond, against long bonds, which are German government bonds. So I'm basically betting on the spread between Italian uh, government bonds and German government bonds to widen. And I am short the S&P 500. Those are the top two positions. So basically short equities, short credits. That's it on, on a nimbler version. If you're not that nimble, you don't want to do futures, you don't want to do options, you don't want to do leverage. And you're a long term, let's say long only investor, then I don't have a lot of good news for you, I'm afraid. The only thing I would suggest is as this is the cycle where you really don't want to take risks, this is the cycle where to play defense, not to play offense. Raising a healthy cash allocation is actually the best thing I can think of. And stay the farther away you can stay from valuation intensive, highly speculative, non-cash flow producing companies. This is actually the, the easiest uh, recipe I can, I can come on the table. So if you can be short, 
then do be short because I think answering your first question, George, we I don't I don't think investors are appreciating the extent of the um, reaction function the central banks have to prove to markets they're willing to put on the table to slay the inflation dragon. It's it's not nearly being priced, and we can think we can discuss uh, where do I see the distribution of probabilities going. Uh, and because of that, then I also think the um, valuation repricing we have seen so far is, you know, is a healthy one, but there is more to go. And the PE actually hasn't really moved on the E front, on the earnings front, which is, you know, another thing we need to consider. Here yeah, talk about the risk yeah Alf, Alf, I have to laugh. You use the word healthy correction. Don't you love when people say, oh, it's a healthy correction? Like, I don't remember I ever had got to a gone through a situation where I've lost money and been glad because it was a healthy correction as opposed to an unhealthy correction, okay? So, no, but I completely agree. I'm teasing you. I'm teasing you. Um, oh, so, okay. yeah, so, so Alf, let's, instead of the blah, 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 I'm going to go straight for the throw because you're, you're a sharp guy. We're on the same page. We don't, we don't, we can, we can go directly. I'm going to go for the throat on this one. Let's go for the knockout punch. So I'm going to, I'm going to sort of, let my hair down and, and, and confide my my innermost deepest fears. I've talked about this on and off in the spaces that I've had, and I, I hesitate to say it because, you know, if it turns out to be the market's only down twenty or twenty five percent, it doesn't go down sixty percent. People can say, "Oh, you're wrong." And historically, it's always a fool's errand to uh, predict a crash. I'm not predicting a crash, but I would say a few things. One. Markets only really ever crash from oversold uh, conditions. You know, whatever oversold means, and we can get to that later. So you have, I would say, the necessary but not sufficient conditions for a crash. You have, um, as you said, risk assets that have come down in price, but they're not cheap. Liquidity, my fear is that um, people are going to be surprised how much. I I guess I'll start with an easy question for you. One of my underwriting fears is that people may be surprised how much rates have to go up, how much tightening is going to be necessary to get inflation down. People are confusing growth with inflation. They're synonymous, but the correlation shift a lot. Depends where you are. So go back to the, you know, the, the past decade of the great moderation where you had relatively more robust growth, but yet low inflation. For all the reasons we know, Eurasian savings, glut, productivity, globalization, blah, blah, blah. Now we got the movie running in reverse. So now, yeah, we get growth slowing, but you don't get the commensurate decline in inflation, or at least the sufficient decline in inflation that the central banks want to deliver. And so that they may have to really tighten hard, especially because some of the factors here are beyond their control, their supply side. So last I checked, the Fed can't grow more wheat, the Fed can't drill for more oil. We got globalization going the wrong way, commodity price, et cetera, you know, oil, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So my question to you is, I guess the first question is, what's the chance that rates really have to go up considerably more than people imagine? I mean, you had people already a few months ago, just turn the clock back a few months ago. Well, you know, they can't raise rates because as soon as they raise rates, the economy, you know, things are going to break and blah, 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 blah. I mean, those, that's the, those are the same people who were saying it was transitory. So I, I just completely ignore them. So I guess my question to you is, I'm on a rant here. Just let people listen to my nonsense. What's the chance that rates have to go up considerably higher? No, let's just take the U.S. 10 years as an example, all right? It's remarkable. It's remarkable that the 10 years gone from 175 to 293, having been 320 or 325 not that long ago, 
has gone from 175 to 293. And, you know, that's against the backdrop of equities selling off pretty hard. And you may say, well, that's the reason equities did sell off pretty hard. But if I told you in, 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 in sitting yesteryear and kinder times and in, in, in bull markets, if I said to you, hey, you know, ARC is going to go down 70%. NASDAQ's going to go down 25%. The S&P is going to fall 15%. What do you think bond yields are going to do? You'd say they go down. No, no. And this goes speaks to the, the change in correlation between stocks and bonds. So I guess the question is, I'm sorry to blather on so much, but I'm trying to, trying to get as much context in the question as possible. What's the chance that people are going to be shocked how high rates have to go in order to give us the sufficient slowdown to deliver not slower growth, but deliver lower inflation. In other words, is a four year, is a four percent ten year beyond the realm of possibility? So, George, to answer this question, um, which basically is what I have tried to do, looking at Europe in uh, today's piece on the Macro Compass, it's my free newsletter. It's going to come out in an hour. So, if you subscribe now, you can get the piece in your inbox for free in about an hour. I looked at exactly this question. And every time I structure a trade, I always have to think, what is the market pricing in, right? Because this is a game of probabilities, George. You don't need to be right or wrong by definition. You need to anticipate how the market is going to shift its probability distribution. If you're earlier than the market in that shift, then you make money. And it doesn't really matter at the end if terminally you were right or wrong. So let's let's examine your question. It's a very smart one. Can I do it from the European standpoint? Yeah, yes, please. Put, yeah, put, do it for the European one, and then we'll modify it for the US one. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. So, okay, European standpoint. Uh, let's see. Tighter monetary policy is not an absolute um, definition. Tighter means tighter than neutral, tighter than an indicative rate that doesn't make the economy overheat or cool down. So in the US, we have heard the Federal Reserve tell us multiple times that this nominal neutral rate is somewhere between two and a half and let's say two and a half percent. That's what they say, right? It's unobservable. There are some models. Let's say it's two and a half percent. Now, the problem we have at hand is that inflation is uh, quickly increasing. The momentum is very high. The broadening of inflationary pressure is pretty significant towards the stickier parts of the inflation basket. And short-term inflation expectations, the distribution of this inflation expectation, has a very fat right tail, which sounds very complicated, but means that traders and actually consumers are expecting with a certain decent probability that inflation will remain way above the Federal Reserve target for the next five years. Not for the next year, for the next five years. So when you face this situation and you're a central banker, you need to tighten monetary policy. Okay, we all agree. Now we look at, the, at, at what's happening in Europe, because Europe is waking up to the same problem, few quarters delayed. I mean, we Europeans like to take things very easy. And in this case as well, we are reacting with the delay as always. Now, the new, the, my estimate for the neutral rate in Europe, um, broadly shared by other people as well, is roughly in the 1.5% nominal area. And now, you know, you see the shots moving and uh, the front end of the European curve and the boons, they're all selling off, right? Because, because the ECB is waking up to the situation. But where are they selling off to? If I look at what's priced in today, in the, in the futures that basically have as underlying the ECB deposit rate over the next few years, effectively, they priced the ECB deposit rate to peak at 1.7% in a year and a half from now. So, okay, we are at negative 50, George. We need to go all the way to 1.7. It's 200 basis point hikes. Wow, that sounds like a lot, right? I just told you that the neutral nominal rate in the Eurozone is one and a half. 
And you think that by raising interest rates 20 basis point, 20 basis point more than a neutral nominal rate, that's going to be enough to actually slay the dragon, to bring inflation expectations down. To bring yeah, 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 yeah. Not happening. Obviously not happening. So, 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 yeah, what, yeah, go ahead. What I did, so, so last thing, what I did as well in the piece at the Macro Compass is look at the latest episode in Europe where inflation was stubbornly higher than the 2% target. So it means it was much higher and for a prolonged period of time and the composition of the inflation you know, distribution was pretty, pretty sticky. And that was in the beginning of the 90s. Europe didn't, so, I mean, the euro didn't exist back then. So in order to look at market reactions, I took France. France representing the barometer, let's say the middleman of Europe, let's call it like that. And then I looked at what the Banque de France had to do, George, back then at the beginning of the 90s in terms of, of monetary policy to actually calm inflation down and to bring it from a stubborn 4% back to 2%. The estimate of neutral rate in the 90s was 4.5%, nominal 4.5%. Do you know at which yields five-year French government bonds traded for two years in a row? They traded I'm, at 9%. Yeah, I, yeah. Alf, I was going to say, because I'm probably a little bit older than you, I was running a mutual fund then, so I remember it well. Yep, keep going, keep going. So, so here you go, 9%. That's double the estimate of neutral rate. It's 450 basis points higher than that. So translated to today, if you want to have such a tight monetary policy stance, it's not 20 basis points above nominal. It's not 1.7%. It needs to be higher than that. And so obviously, when you have a situation like this, what markets are going to do, they're going to be chasing the central banks, right? And they're going to be chasing them and trying to push um, market pricing for higher interest rates. And as that happens in Europe, you can sort of translate the same recipe and the same analogy I've been making with the US too, if you want to move that way. All right. So, I mean, this is a conversation that is not held between polite uh, men and women. If there are any children in the room, please leave now. This may offend your sensibilities. Um, no, I'm not going to use four-letter words. So I'm going to take what you just said and apply it to the U.S. And, you know, there are people like Stephen Roche, who, former uh, chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia, a personal friend. He's written a great piece. I, I put it in my Twitter feed about how the Fed is so out of touch with the reality. They're so far behind the curve. Henry Kaufman, still alive, same thing. And you have, you know, people who have been in the room who, who know markets, all the smart guys, I would say, saying one thing. And then you have the highly politicized know-nothings on the Fed, like uh, Mary Daly from San Francisco. They're, they're all the same. And it's like, I think I'm living in a parallel universe. So coming back to your idea of what the neutral rate is, um, you know, and I guess, I, I, Alf, when you refer to the neutral rate, are you referring to a concept that's kind of broadly similar to sort of uh, the, the Wixalian interest rate, um, i.e. set the rate above nominal GDP or low nominal GDP? Because I, I kind of, listening to you talk, it sounds kind of like the same thing. Is, are you familiar with with, 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 with Wixalian interest rate as a similar type of concept to yours? Yeah, it's, it's a similar but not exactly the same. So the, the, the neutral rate in my... Well, in, in today's monetary policy, policy jargon will be the interest rate at which the economy doesn't cool down or excessively, um, let's say, overheat. So right. will be an interest rate that when you set it, then the economy grows at potential. Effectively, there is no hike or, or uh, no increase or slowdown in unemployment rate, no increase or slowdown compared to potential GDP. 
you know, things run smooth, basically. Okay, that's what yeah, the, yeah. The neutral rights should be. Okay, so that's broadly that's broadly consistent. So here's my problem. I agree with these theoretical exercises that refer to sort of equilibrium in the long run, but you know, as Keynes once said, in the long run we're all dead. The problem is right here, right now, it's path dependency. And also keeping in mind the long and variable legs with which interest rates affect monetary policy affects the real economy. So especially when you consider it's a political item, you know, they're, they're the only reason they care about inflation now is because of political reasons. But I actually fear in a bigger scheme of things that the wheels possibly, if they don't get this thing in check, the wheels are just going to come off the economy completely. I mean, capitalism as we know it is going to completely blow up. Um, I mean, it, it's running the risk of becoming unhinged. But what I'm concerned about in the short run is like, okay, you know, they, they seem to think these geniuses on CNBC breathlessly hang on to every word from Jerome Powell. Like if they just increase rates by 25, you know, they would debate 25 or 50, 50 or 75. They're so far behind the curve. And not only that, what's happening now is largely by dint of actions that were taken a long time ago. So the idea that they're going to be able to do anything in the short run to, to influence um, election outcomes, I, I think we're well past that point right now. And so my concern is that rates are going to go up an unspeakable amount. And frankly, I mean, okay, so the most interest-sensitive parts of the economy, housing, fine, they're getting shot. We know that. Okay, and that's not good. But if the real casualty from this is, and I actually think this is a good thing what's happening, because I, mean, I don't want to get into too much of an existential philosophical discussion, but if, we're, if we are, if we are, um, doing this norm trying to normalize the system you know we, we had excessive fiscal stimulus excessive monetary stimulus and bit by bit the system's trying to trying to regain its footing that's actually a good thing not a bad thing it's a good thing and if all the malinvestments of all of all the bullshit 30 times revenues kathy wood type stocks get killed and tiger global goes bankrupt because they're stuck in a liquid stuff i don't care as a matter of fact that's we, get, we need to get the rules of engagement back on a proper footing for the economy so you know, it's it looks. If you're a real company, with and, and and you make profits, and you're not selling dreams and narratives, and you have cash flow and a decent balance sheet, and you didn't lever yourself up excessively like American Airlines, I mean, the idea that interest rates go up 50 basis points, 100 basis points, who gives a shit? It's not going to affect you. I mean, because policy is still so stimulative. To your point, interest rates are so far below, given where pricing is right now. I don't think raising rates is stopping anyone with a legitimate uh, investment uh, purpose from investing. And what's stopping people from investing is if you're a company, you look at, you look at, look at CEO uh, um, uh, attitudes uh, and consumer attitudes. What's, what's killing them is not growth. What's killing or lack of what's killing them is inflation. So coming back to the question, I'm sorry, I'm, I, I really fired up this morning. I had a lot too much coffee. Um, do you think it's a reasonable chance that, um, I don't know how you want to frame it. I want to pin you down a specific answer. But let's talk about the right tail. Um, do you think, do you, uh, I don't know if you're a gambler or one top, if I said to you, I said to you, or over under, okay, if I said to you, do you think the, and pick whatever interest rate you want, I'm just going to pick the U.S. 10-year because I got that on my screen. You think we're going to see like a, a 350 U.S. 10-year sometime this year or pick a number? Do you think we've seen the high end rates? Like, where do you think you see rates going from here? So the answer I have to give to that question is um, short-term higher, uh, both in Europe and in the US. And the reason is relatively simple. I mean, um, there are three paths ahead of us. The first is that inflation slows down, George, but that's to slow down 
faster than the Federal Reserve already expects it to slow down and faster than inflation swaps are already pricing it to slow down. Because what people actually misunderstand is that, yeah, inflation has peaked. Look at the latest uh, year-on-year numbers. Yeah, okay. But um, do you know that the Federal Reserve themselves expect inflation to be below 4% by year-end on a year-on-year basis? And based on that, they've still promised us to hike to above 2% by year-end. So if you want to see a looser monetary policy stance, then the pace of slowdown in inflation needs to be faster than what's already expected. If that happens, then you know the central banks can take the, the foot of the gas pedal. They can just ease down because you know there's no reason to over-tighten conditions if they're getting what they want at the pace they want it, which is a solid inflation slowdown. What is the probability that's going to happen? I don't think it's very, very high looking at a bunch of stuff going on across the world right now, as you already said it uh, too. The other two scenarios are the, let's say, base case scenarios. And now you're talking about tails, and that is interesting. So let's say we need to do a trade here, uh, George, and we want to look at trades. So you said 10-year treasuries. I'm going to say let's do Fed funds, okay? Everybody can, can immediately understand that. So let's say Fed funds or euro dollars, right? So right now I'm on my Bloomberg terminal, and I'm uh, going to go with the euro dollar December 2022 contract, which for people here listening effectively replicates the LIBOR at the at year end, which if you apply a spread, gives you a very good idea of where the Fed funds rate will be by year end. And let's say that, um, what do you expect, George? What is the probability, the tail risk that we have right now, that the Fed has to high rates to what by the end of the year? 4%, 5%? There's low inflation. I'll answer your question with a question, which is, I don't see, I think it's extremely unlikely if you just start running the numbers and look at the monthly CPI numbers that I think are in store, considering the energy cycling back up, food is up, the bullshit owner's equivalent rent thing is is a travesty. Um, I think inflation is going up in the coming months. So the idea that we're going to be at four or three or whatever the number is by the end of the year, just not going to happen. I mean, I really like, I really like Jim Bianco's definition of transitory. He says transitory is, a, is, is, is inflation where if you don't do anything, it'll go down by itself. And in my view, the answer to that is no. Or put it this way, maybe it's peaked, maybe it has, and I don't think it has. But if inflation is six or seven, three or four months from now, we're still in the shit. Excuse my French. Um, so <laughs> I, I, think, I think we're screwed. I mean, how, what, what would your pushback be to that? No, I was just trying to understand what what is the market pricing in. You asked me about tails, right? So let's yep. let's look at what the market is pricing in. So the market right now is a modal outcome for Fed funds rate to be at 2.7% by year end. 2.7, roundabout, let's say 2.7. Yep. Okay. Yep. okay, so let's, let's try to price what is the tail risk that the market is assigning that Fed funds rate need to be one full percentage point higher. So that's 3.7. That's uh, yep. quite some hikes eh, to deliver yep. between now and December. But let's let's go for it. Three point seven percent. Okay. So if I do if I do a call spread and I structure it, I pay six cents or five and a half cents more or less to buy this one, and then I'm doing the the calculation in front of you guys. So allow me a second to give you an implied probability from markets. I think it's a useful exercise. So that's uh, stay with me for a second. No worries. So the market is a, is assigning approximately a ten percent probability of that to happen. Here is your tail risk priced, George. So, 10%. so hold on, hold on, hold on. The payoff end. So you pay six cents 
it's a spread. So what's your upside? You can make a hundred. You can make a, you can make a hundred six cents to to a dollar. Well, what's the payoff on that? I'm sorry. So basically, on this option here, you end up paying. Yeah, you pay basically six cents, and I made up the call spread such that you have a payoff roughly of nine times compared to what I, I told you before. Nine so you get, times. Yeah. That's so, nice. That's nice. Yeah. So it's 12% implied probability, roughly. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't run the full thing, but roughly 12% probability. So if you want to understand what the market is pricing in, 12% chance that we left to hike rates to 3.7% by year end. Now, if, if you believe that the Federal Reserve, that the inflation is going to remain stickier than what it's already priced. So that instead of having this slowdown of inflation all the way down to 4% in a year on year, it actually remains at month-on-month -month levels, George, that don't allow inflation to slow down by the end of the year. The reaction function of the Federal Reserve is not linear anymore. That's what, yes. that's what people are not, um, I think, um, estimating with the right probability in markets. The same for the ECB, by the way. Because when policymakers, George, they, when they are in a comfort zone, so where inflation and inflation expectations are between one and a half and two and a half percent, George, in that case, they can react very linearly. They can say, yeah, if, inf if inflation is going up a bit, I'm going to react in a linear fashion. I'm going to hike a bit. I'm going to tighten a bit. And when inflation is slowing down, I'm going to loosen a bit. But once you go close to the danger zone, which for a policymaker means losing control, losing credibility, which means inflation is below 1% or inflation is above 3, 3.5% 3 for a while. When you go towards a danger zone, George, the reaction is not linear anymore. The reaction has to be a Volcker-like reaction. I mean, Powell mentioned Volcker, I don't know how many times over the last few months. And people are debating whether he's able to pull a Volcker, a full Volcker. But the market here is pricing in a 10% chance of 3.7% Fed funds by year end which would be a 40% Volcker, a 50% Volcker. Right. So the market is pricing in basically a 5% Volcker reaction. Right. Right. Now, do you think that's enough? I don't know. It's up to you guys, but I'm just giving no, you the probability. But, 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 yeah, but also we have, we have a lot of uh, uh, energy-friendly uh, uh, folks in the room here today from the uh, Canadian Oil Mafia. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but there's a whole bunch of these guys. I'm, I'm an honorary uh, paid-up member, uh, even though I'm American. Um, believe in energy, particularly Canadian energy. And so I think another real risk that's not being appreciated by the um, sort of macro tourists, if you will, if you really roll your sleeves up and do the work and look at what's going on with energy, I think you reach a you know, far more dire conclusion. Um, in other words, you know, we tend to look, try to forecast the future through the lens of the past. And we have a very different energy situation right now where Excess production capacity is uh, dwindling. We've had eight years of a 70% of decline in capital, capital expenditures in energy. Uh, energy CEOs are being greenwashed. Uh, you know, don't you dare put another hole in the ground. I think we're, we're marching full speed into an energy crisis. You know, we may get inflation coming down a lot eventually because we're going to go into a huge economic downturn. But it's a question of sequencing. And... You know, so so if, if you think that the tail's underpriced, which I think is what, you know, what I'm hearing you say, we, and you say you're you want to be short the S&P, and I want to go to questions because I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, the trade that I've been on for a year now has been long energy short uh, arc. It's up, I don't know, 400%. <laughs> I, I think it's still the right trade. So if you were just to think about the rotation in the market, 
rather than you and me bullshit each other, well, the S&P is going to do this, that, whatever, but just think sectorally. Do you think it still makes sense to, like, I mean, I want to be involved in companies that have pricing power, um, where there's been underinvestment, short duration, high correlation to rising rates, et cetera, et cetera. And I want to be short the ones that are price takers, overvalued, long duration, you know, malinvestment, cash flow negative. And to me, the macro world that you're describing still suggests that's the right way to be. So what do you, I mean, right here, right now, do you think being long, something like energy and some being short, something like ARC, forget about the day-to-day, week-to-week, anything can bounce. I get it. Energy's overbought, ARC's oversold. I get all that. But looking out, say, between now and the end of the year, do you think that trade makes sense? Uh, yes. If you ask me whether I want to do that trade between now and the end of the year, then the answer is yes. Uh, between being neutral, selling and buying the trade, I'd rather buy the trade. Uh, as a friend of mine would say in a, in a hedge fund, uh, George, he would always ask me, Alf, do you need the second leg of the trade? Why do you need the complexity? Would always be his question. And I respect this guy. I think he's very smart. And in this case, the, com- yep. the complexity, George, would be adding the long side of the trade, right? Which, we, which is the, the energy side of the trade. Yeah. And, and actually, you might want to argue it's going to make more money than, um, uh, than only being short risk assets. I mean, for instance, if you were short the S&P, you would have made 15% year to date. If you were long oil right. against it, you would have made a gazillion more. So in that case... Oh, yeah. I, mean, I, mean, yeah. <laughs> I don't have the number right in front of me, but, but that trade this year to date is up over 100% already. All right. And, and the, thing, the thing is, I believe we're going through a, a, a regime change in, 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 in on the macro side of things. And this trade is not a trade. It's an investment. I think this, I think this, this idea, I think this is going to run for years, years. Um, so, by the way, Alf, have you given special, have you actually looked carefully at energy by itself, leaving aside the overall macro framework itself? But, um, you know, sometimes people that are too close to the trade are too close to the trade. They can't see it. But when you look at energy itself, do you, uh, what's your sort of, as, as an informed macro tourist, as a smart macro tourist, What's your sort of two cents on the energy trade? Leaving aside duration and all this other nonsense, just the idea that, you know, we, we're really, we, we have a huge supply problem right now. It's, it's not about demand. It's about supply. And if you go back and you look in the last 50 years, you've only had three occasions where demand for oil has gone down. It's always the supply side, which is the problem. And boy, do we have a supply side problem in spades. So do you have any thoughts about energy or would you rather not answer that question? Is that beyond your expertise? <laughs> It's not my home turf, but if I look at global macro and asset classes, it screams as a place that is very, very tight supply-wise. And people are focusing a lot on the demand destruction, and they're going to say, well, if ultimately we go into a recession uh, or a strong growth slowdown driven uh, by, by monetary policy, tighter monetary policy, then ultimately demand has to roll over and, and uh, commodities, commodities have to roll over too. Yeah. Well, that, that might be cyclically right. So there is a cyclical aspect to it and then there is a more structural aspect to it. And on the structural aspect, right. one, one comment I can make, George, on that. I mean, there are plenty sure. of commodities that obviously need to be produced and they need capex much, much more than what we have done over the last 10 years uh, because of the, of the energy transition. Uh, and so people are, are, let's say, extrapolating relatively quickly that, you know, the capex we need in lithium or in uh, aluminum or in copper or whatever is three times more what we have had over the last 10 years. So prices need to go up, right? And, and while I do subscribe on the, let's say, underlying assumptions behind that, there's one thing I'd like to say. Obviously, technology is going to advance as well over the next 20 years. So you cannot assume that the, with the technology we have today, 
uh, we are going to be facing this high capex to the same extent as if technology wouldn't advance over the next 20 years. So always keep that yeah, no, keep I, that I, in I, mind. But but in- yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I get your last point. I guess my, what I would always say is, you know, is, is it, there there's a the story may be right. As my friend Joel Tillinghast, the Fidelity uh, fund manager of the low price stock fund, always says, the story may be right, but the price is wrong. In other words, what's already in the price? And you know, I have I struggle. I look at just I'm going to pick on, on on Kathy Wood. It's my favorite pastime. And I just look I, look I look at the garbage she has in her portfolio. And I love someone tweeted out the other day. You know, she was complaining. She says, "Well, you know, if you're if you're short Arc, you're 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 short." American innovation. Somebody said, "No, no, we're just short your ability to correctly identify innovation." So, but 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 in any event, the story may be right, but the price is wrong. Is my point. Um, but in any event, listen, enough of that. All right. So, look, look, I, now if we only got another ten minutes or so, so I want to get some mm-hmm. questions. Um, if anyone has a question, by the way, I urge everyone to follow Alf if they haven't already. And Alf, I can't wait to read your your your, your latest edition of your newsletter. So, it'll be coming out within the hour. Hopefully, once you get off this call, you can you can hit the send button. But if you have a question, please raise your hand. We're going to go to Philip first. If I don't know you, um, please DM me your question because I don't want extraneous questions. So, Philip, good to see you. What, what you have a question for Alf? What's up, Philip? Hey, George. Uh, good morning. Yeah, Alf. Great to hear from you guys. So, you know, I, I think there's some cognitive dissonance going on, right, with respect to the Fed. We saw during the Great Financial Crisis the decisive actions they took to lower rates, right? And then we saw it again during the pandemic where Powell um, took the rate down, I think it was 100 or 150 basis points within, you know, literally weeks. And, and yet there's this massive inflation happening. We see it everywhere. The, the official statistics by anyone's reasonable estimation are massively undercounted, right? I mean, you look at the combination of shrinkflation with the actual cost of goods, whether it be groceries, fuel, or all the other things that have fuel embedded in it, right? And, and inflation is raging. Yet our politicians, both stateside and you know, Lagarde in Europe, Alf, are slow rolling it, like unbelievably slow rolling it. So you've got this decisive action during the pandemic, and then you have this you know, they're saying they, they don't want inflation, but I, I think they do. I think they want inflation and I think they want inflation, you know, above trend, right? Above 2%, 3 4 5% for many, many years, because that solves a really big problem for, for all, you know, Western governments around the world that have massive debt to GDP. And so, Elf, the question is, what's the probability that we're just blatantly being lied to and that the fed the treasury congress they want and need above trend inflation and what are the implications for that both uh in the bond market and uh in equity markets oh it's a very good question philip uh the answer to that is that although it sounds very palatable to believe that that is the plan I don't think that is the plan by design. And the reason is that once you let the inflation genie out of the bottle, it is very, very, very painful to to get it back. And so the risk reward from a policymaker perspective to let inflation run where it would need to be able to run for the private and the public sector, that levels to, to be deflated away, it is so high and so durable, needs to be so durable over term 
that it seriously risks an anchoring inflation expectation. It then starts a spiral that no policymaker wants to be held accountable for. So despite it's palatable, uh, I think it is not uh, the best risk-reward strategy from a policymaking perspective. When I, when I, I, I used to run a $20 billion portfolio, so I was lucky enough to have the chance to talk to these policymakers. All they care about, really, all they care about is to make sure the status quo is preserved. No hero, no big plan, no great reforms, no great agenda. It's all about keeping the status quo. And, you know, running inflation at 5% well, or 6% for 10 years. This, so, this... Al, how, how do you explain, how, how do you explain, you know, both? Hey, Philip, um, you, you're, you're, Al, can you hear him? I think we can't hear him anymore. Sorry. Yeah, Philip, go ahead. We're yeah, losing you. I was just saying, you know, how do you explain then the fact that Powell isn't doing a Volcker or anything close to it, as you suggested with some of the well, Phil, 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 let me let me just take that. It's real simple. I've, I've talked to a lot of people about this. The, the Fed with a with a freaking four hundred egghead uh, PhD economists. Um, they're complete Keynesians. Um, they they just they're living in the past. They don't get it. I actually. If they were lying, I, that actually might be better in the sense of giving credit for being smart. They're just lying. I actually think it's far worse than that. I just think it's it's it, it's arrogant, massive group groupthink. Thanks for the question, Philip. I want to move on because Alpha's only got a few more minutes here. Yeah, um, great. Thanks, guys. Yeah, let's go to the tourists. Tourists, how are you? What's up, man? Hey, guys. Good, good. Uh, this space has been absolutely fantastic. One of the best I've joined in a long time. Um, my question is just regarding, so you touched on uh, ener- energy, specifically oil. I'm wondering if I can get your thoughts on natural gas and uh, specifically focusing on North America's large exports to Europe. Just with the sorry, 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 sorry. That's not a question for Alp. That's not a question for Alp. We could, please. This, oh, this, I this, thought it was for you. Sorry, no, 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 no. If we could just save, we could save that for later because Alf has to leave in like five or ten minutes. So it's a good question. If you could just hold it, please. We've got Alf is very gracious with his time. I want to save. My apologies. My apologies. Alf. Okay, no problems. Let's just hold the question. It's a great question. Darren, uh, good to see you. you. Got a question for Alf, Darren? Yeah, George, Alf. I, you know, I tend we tend to treat you like a crystal ball sometimes, right? Where we just want to shake you and see what else you see. You know, you you mentioned some of that right tail uh, skew in in terms of probability outcomes. What what is another less likely scenario, but one that has the most impact in your mind in the short term? here when we look at U.S. markets on a, on a right tail skew? Is it in energy? Is it somewhere else? Where are you seeing some of the, the most less likely but the highest impact macroeconomic scenarios? Beautiful question, Darren. I always love to think about tails um, and how they're priced. The answer is pretty straightforward, and it's uh, the housing market, which is very difficult to trade, unfortunately. Uh, but um, if I am right on the Federal Reserve having to um, volcarize a bit more than what's priced in, then mortgage rates have not stopped going up. And if mortgage rates haven't stopped going up, it makes the monthly mortgage installment for the median house in the U.S. even less affordable than it already has become. And then people say, yeah, but there is no supply of housing. Uh, give, it, give it a couple of months because the, the amount of constructed houses that are coming for sales in the U.S. market, even adjusted for population over the next few quarters, is relatively large. So there are reasons to believe that um, 
we are not going to see a 20-30% drawdown in house prices, but the housing market is nothing else than a um, big levered real yield play at the end of the day. 87% of transactions in the US housing market are backed by a mortgage, 80-85% LTB mortgage. So you understand that even if you inflation adjust everything, if wages aren't going up and uh, mortgage rates are going up, the only variable to adjust the equation is for house prices to drop a bit. So I'm trying to figure out how to play that um, via leverage, Darin, and I haven't been able to identify yet um, a call spread or a put spread or a tail pricing for what's price in terms of house prices going forward. But analyst consensus out there, if you want to use that, is for house prices to increase in nominal terms by 12% year on year in uh, in 2022. Yeah, it, it, not happening. Um, I can say that because my girlfriend is a very big real estate broker here in the New York area. Uh, not happening. You already. I'll tweet out some stuff later, but you're already seeing supply increase significantly. Um, we can get caught up in anecdotes as we know real estate's a, a local affair. But um, overall, that's just not happening. So I agree with you, Alf. I think that's a real risk. Um, and so, yeah, and that has kind of obvious consequences for the, uh, for the economy of broadly speaking. But Alf, let me just go back to the question I asked at the top. So say we get the slowdown growth. Clearly, we are getting slower, right? Say we get, you know, we get, well, I don't want to argue about it's a recession. It's not a recession. Let's just say growth really slows down. But inflation is still hanging. I mean, I, I want to paint the nightmare scenario for equities, which I actually think is where we're going. You're going to get this slowdown in inflation. Maybe you get it. Maybe you don't. I don't know. I mean, some smart guys I follow think inflation is going to go higher in the coming months. But leave that aside. Let's just say inflation is still a clear and present danger going forward. Inflation is anywhere from, I don't know, 6 to 14%, three to six months from now. And you got slowing growth. I can't think of a more deadly scenario. Slowing growth. Profits getting absolutely destroyed. I mean, you look at the... The profits from some of the retailers recently I mean, you know, costs out of control. They're now having to bid up wages. I'd remind everybody, you know, wage inflation is now accelerating. That's a process, not an event. It's accelerating as we get the shift in consumption from goods to services. What if we wind up, Al, three months from now? Not, not what if, but what's the probability, I would say, that three months from now, you know, sorry to disappoint the CNBC crowd, but you still got inflation, I don't know, 6 8 10%. And growth is slow and profits are really getting destroyed. You know, <laughs> what's the chance that that happens? And if so, where do you think the market would trade to? Oof. So, um, I again, I invite people to subscribe to the Macro Compass. My piece is going to be out in five minutes uh, after the, the spaces. And it summarizes basically all what we are saying here. Uh, I attach probabilities to each scenario and the probability you are describing right now where the inflation momentum doesn't really decelerate um, I attach about a 20-25% chance of that scenario and then I try to look at what market probabilities for that scenario right now implied in different asset classes and the answer is below 10%. So obviously, George, if you think that's going to happen, then every trade that is short risk premium, short risk assets, short bonds, short gold, short everything which is not cash, volatility or the very few selected macro asset classes that can preserve purchasing power pricing power throughout that period. Anything that is not that is going to get clobbered. Very simple. And I mean, and Alf, I would just say another thing to relate to that. When people say, oh, I have to buy something or I, the phrase I really can't stand, I got to put money to work. I hate that phrase. What do you mean you got to put money to work? Says who? Okay. What if, what if 
we had the everything bubble, and we had the we had the sort of you know uh, we had the everything bubble, and now we get the everything bear market. And you know we had what was called the the rational uh, bull market. You know even though prices were high, they were going higher. The expectations theory. You know people buy high and sell higher. Well, this is the rational bear market. We're not even below fair value. So like with, with valuations still being you know on, on, extended, profit margins are about to get destroyed. All right. Um, liquidity continuing to tighten, the economy about to slow. What I miss, Alf. Like other than that, what could possibly go wrong? I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, but and people don't like me because they say I'm too bearish. No, I'm not bearish. I'm a realist. So I don't know. I mean, I, I just um, right, enough of my rant. So, so Alf, I know you got to run, but let's just do one or two more questions. Michael, uh, good to see you. What's up, Mike? You got a question for Alf? Yeah, hi George. Hi everyone. Alf, this is fantastic. My question: uh, Do you see a yield curve inversion? And what do you think about the value growth, long short, going forward? Thank so you. So the answer to the first question is uh, yield curve can be defined in many ways, but let's say five year against thirty years in the U.S., it is already inverted. And you're like, Alf, you're looking at the wrong screen. Uh, my screen says that thirty year treasuries are three point oh eight, and five years are two point ninety one. So so it's it's sixteen basis point above zero. I mean, what what am I looking at? Well, you're looking at the wrong curve. The right curve is the OIS curve, overnight index swaps. Sounds extremely complicated, but it's really not. Again, it's on a piece called the Bond Market 101 series on the Macro Compass, where I explain why this curve makes much more sense to look at than the Treasury curve. Uh, it only replicates the expectation for Fed funds rate over time. That is what really we are interested in when looking at yield curves. This yield curve has been inverted relentlessly, nonstop since February. It's been inverted for four months. It's predicted every single recession. It has, an over, it has not over-predicted any recession, contrary to other indicators. And it has been inverted for four months in a row. So it is basically already inverted from that perspective, and it's not disinverting anytime soon. And um, I forgot the other question, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, the value growth. Uh, yeah, that's a function of, of uh, inflation. Ultimately, it's a function of inflation and, and duration and interest rates. Again, if you think inflation is going to remain at least stickier than what central banks expect, their reaction has to be more than linear, more than what's priced in. And if that is the case, then anything that is valuation intensive, a proxy for bonds gets absolutely clobbered. If you think otherwise... So, so Alf, 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 just to help everybody in the room, um, could you just repeat that again? Because, you know... It's only like geeky, smart guys like you that do bonds. For dumb equity guys like me, we kind of fall asleep when we start listening to this. But if people want to learn more about this yield curve, what is it, where, where should they be looking and what should they be looking so, for, please? Uh, I have released the series, which is it's all free, guys. There is no paywall. There is nothing. You just go on the macro. Hey, Al, 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 I'm going to tease you. Did anybody read it? Or is this, is this recommended reading if you want to go on <laughs> Uh, well, it's 50,000 subscribers to the newsletter, so I guess... Okay. No, 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 the letter's good. No, the letter's good, but this, but this bond thing... <laughs> yeah, a couple of guys, yes. And, you know, what I try to do, George, in the end, is try to share some of the knowledge I've accumulated on the bond market and other global sure. macro stuff. So in this series, I explained how to look at bond markets. And one of the pieces on the bond market 101 series on the macro compass is dedicated to the OIS curve, overnight index swaps. I explain why you should look at that rather than at the treasury curve, where to find the data to look at that. It's all publicly available. Uh, go and check it out, guys, because it's going to take too long to explain on, on the, that's, on that's the podcast. Yeah. 
That, that's fabulous. That's fabulous. All right, listen, Alf, um, you've been more than generous with your time. We're going to keep this room open. Um, if you want to stay for more questions, great. But I know you said 45 minutes. We're already at 55. Um, but I think probably you want to get that issue out. So we're going to keep this room going for a while. But I want to thank you. This has been fantastic. It's been one of the best, best spaces we've done. Um, and I hope you'll come back because, uh, as you can appreciate, um, this is not your normal space. We try to we try to call them like we see them. We don't we don't try to sugarcoat it. So I want to thank you for everything. This has been fantastic. I really thank appreciate you, you inviting me, George. And every time you want to have a chat with a nice audience here asking questions, please call Perfect. me back and I'll be back. Well, that's fantastic, Alf. All right. So everyone follow Alf and you'll you'll get that, that follow his Substack. You'll get you'll get his letter coming out. So that's fantastic. That's awesome, Alf. Thank you very, very much. Okay, so um Let's see. So, Crypto Bull, you haven't spoken yet. What's up, Crypto Bull? Hello. Well, I had a question for Alf, but I can ask ask the, the same question to you. Uh, we're seeing uh, yield spiking everywhere, and uh, in production inflation in Southern Europe is up 40% year on year. So, I'm sure you're familiar with the European crisis, uh, Euro crisis, and it looks like there won't be a whatever it takes moment this time because ECB is turning hawkish. So, what's your forecast for Southern Europe and what could be the consequences, not just for Europe, but for the world economy? Because 10 years ago, uh, it was like, uh, it looks like it could become some sort of uh, uh, earthquake for the world economy. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like I don't. I've been investing in European markets for almost forty years now, um, since my days at Fidelity. And that question about you know is the euro going to blow up in the European Union? Blah blah blah. I, I try not to focus on that too much, just because I don't think I have any particular um, variant perception. And I think it's 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 a prisoner's dilemma. They're you know they're they're stuck in this prison of their own doing. And yeah, there are a lot of costs to be paid by staying with this. But equally, you have to consider what are the costs that are incurred if you if you if you let it go. And I just think they'll do anything and everything they possibly can to uh, keep this thing together. You know, it was uh, it was funny when Alpha was talking earlier about officials not telling the truth and lying. I remember John called Juncker. You know back you know when, when it was a 10 years ago a dozen years ago time of the crisis you know when the going gets tough you have to lie so they will cheat borrow beg steal to do everything to keep the european experiment together that's my own two cents but um so i, I don't know i i just think they're more they're more they're, it's an important question you raise i just think it's 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 beyond economics it's a political thing as much as anything and therefore i, I just yeah, I don't think it's worth spending a lot of time on. Um, so, hey, KFAB, good to see you, my friend. What's up? Hey, George. Good to see you, as always, uh, or speak with you, I guess I should say. Um, so I, I was just going to raise, because I, I just wanted to listen to, to Alf. It's always when you get guys with that amount of horsepower, uh, I do better just listening rather than getting engaged. And um, one of the technical aspects that I thought I'd, I'd bring up is I think we're entering a period where um, – people's understanding of reported inflation and their their level it, it's a little dorky but i think it's important meaning that um the official inflation data is specifically engineered not to show inflation we know this that was publicly disclosed it's you know public record um there's been talk about 
making it even worse at times as tr as part of so-called uh, entitlement reform <laughs> uh, at times. So what was very unusual about the last 12 months is that because of the supply chain and the invasion and, and everything that went on and, you know, the shifts in supply and demand curves because of the massive amount of stimulus, that nexus created a very pervasive increase in prices. So it was... You know, all of the, the statistical gymnastics that they've put in to try and suppress reported inflation, like hedonics, uh, substitution, all these various mechanisms didn't work as well because you had such broad increases in prices across the board. And I think what we're starting to see now is some dispersion emerge, meaning that because of the consumers kind of rolling over, the economy's you know very likely rolling over and probably going to enter a recession in the next six to twelve months. Um, you're going to have increased dispersion, and that doesn't mean an inflation that we're all living with is actually dr dropping. But what it does highly suggest is that reported inflation is going to come down, and because we live in a world of perception, and markets are going to respond to you know government numbers regardless. I think that's an important thing to factor into everyone's calculus because. You know, they're going to say, you know, uh, it's coming down, whether it's not, uh, it's, it's almost irrelevant in a sense. Um, so I just wanted to, to, to raise that point because I, I think it's something that a lot of people aren't aware of. Um, and it's, it's coming. I mean, we're already seeing like the Dallas trimmed mean PCE rolling over. I mean, it, you know, <laughs> they're going to make up whatever inflation number they want. And it, 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 it's, it's hard to, uh, um, it was hard for them to, to hide things, so to speak, in the last 12 months because of the factors I mentioned. But that that's probably ending. So, 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 Keith, let me understand something for you. So uh, I get you're saying certain prices are rolling over. So all the CNBC guys are breathlessly thinks it's all about used car prices. They may derive succor from that. The other side of it is, though, you got oil cycling back up, food cycling back up, owner's equivalent rent, which they have to bleed in. You know, they have that fraud of 5% inflation over the last year. When the real number is like 20 or 25 percent, that's 32 percent of the CPI basket. So netting all that out, do you think the reported numbers, I, I know you said dispersion, but when you when you put it in the blender and, and mix it all up, what do you think happens to the print CPI numbers in the next few months? Yes, CPI is a little harder, um, but the one that they focus on kind of core PCE. That's the, yep. you know, so they're going to back out food and energy. So that magically disappears. <laughs> right. So the, the, yep. the, glo the global uh, energy crisis and the famine that might be hitting much of the world in the next 12 months, uh, we'll just pretend that that's not happening. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the rest of this kind of these machinations then get um, amplified in that non core basket that they have in this PCE number. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, but do you think the market's gonna? Yeah. You think the market's gonna go for that bullshit? Because I mean, it's one thing to say ignore food and energy when it's a little thing. When it's when when, when it's sucking up all the oxygen in the room, like you think the the, the market's gonna give them a free hall pass on that? that that's a great question. I, I I don't know. I don't have a strong sense on that. So I think that that's where structuring, you know, positions. Um, depending on what what might happen there, I mean, in that the, the curve's probably going to steepen. The question is, is how's it going to steepen? Because um, it always steepens into recession. Uh, the question, and the Fed will likely, you know, pivot. Because, and I'm going to write about this tomorrow. I mean, the Fed always pivots. I mean, this idea that the, the central banks reversing course after they tighten into a recession somehow magically fixes things is 
nonsense. Like they're, they always pivot late uh, other than the 94 tightening cycle. Um, and, and, and if we're going to get a recession, they'll follow the recession down. I mean, that it's kind of independent of that. So the question is, to your point, I think, is whether the long end and, and inflation expectations stay anchored. Um, I'm of the view that the, the fake inflation, as I call it, I joke, the phony baloney inflation that, you know, we've known about this since the late 90s. And yet the entire investment industry and institutions have adopted the fake inflation calculation. Yeah, I, I know. I mean, that, that, that's the cousin, the analog to uh, non-gap earnings. But I guess, yeah. I guess the problem is now that the real the the, 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 the people can smell the baloney starting to smell really bad. Yeah, it's one of the inflation's understated by a little bit, but it's a complete joke now. Okay, so like, I my view is I, I agree with what you're saying, but in terms of the market response function, like, what's the market going to focus on? I'm not sure the market's going to give them a free hall pass on this. And, and they may not, but I, you mentioned one of my favorite phrases from Michael Steinhardt, the variant perception. And that re- reminds me of the 81 to 84 period when he almost blew up um, yep. uh, because he went long bonds, long-term bonds a little early. And, yep. you know, real rates, you know, Vol- Volcker and the tightening did crush inflation Yet the long end did not come down because people were so traumatized from uh, the long term battle with inflation and what had happened that you could sure. still buy the 30 year. At, I don't need to tell you, you were there <laughs> yep. uh, that, yep. you know, you could buy the 30 year at 12 percent when inflation was at 4 percent because no yep. one no one believed it. So I, I agree with you. Like I, I'm 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 trying to intellectually stay agnostic because I I am in 100 percent agreement with you. I don't, I'm not sure about whether or not the markets will price that in in this part of the cycle, meaning that it, it may require I could see a scenario anyway where um, the, the recession knocks some of these things out enough. If the recession's deep enough and, and bad enough and then global, that's the key. Like, you know, a lot of the problems, the worst of this cycle are outside the U.S., Emerging markets. Yeah, are going to get I think it's more important, too, because at the end of you and I want to make money we, we can. We can push the ball back and forth all day long, and you know, yep. it's recession, it's not a recession, it's it's inflation, it's disinflation. At the end of the day, how do we freaking make money? Okay, and where I come out on it is that you know, you can either have a recession if if if, if Powell rediscovers his inner, if Powell discovers his inner Paul Volcker, or they can whiff and try to cheat and pretend like there's nothing to see here, move along. In which case, I think you're going to get, you know, they're not, it's not going to, inflation is going to cycle back up yet again. In other words, that's what I'm trying to say is the one, I'll give you door number one, which is recession, door number three, which is inflation. What I'm not going to give you, door number two, and I have heavy security guards standing in front of this, no Goldilocks for you. You are not, Goldilocks is not in your future. And therefore, I I think, I think equities have been sentenced to death. That I agree with. I, I guess my big question is whether or not we get a disinflationary shock first, and then that that kind of opens the door towards longer term inflation expectations de-anchoring. Yeah, right? I, we... I, yeah, and I could see that, but just again, it's yeah. dependent. You know, we get this defl- deflationary shock for fifty dollars in double jeopardy. Is the market up or down on that? So the the, the point is, uh, I, I think the market's way down on that. Yeah, I know. So the the point is checkmate for equities. Period. Game over. Tiger yep. is Tiger is bankrupt. They just don't know it yet. Okay, they're going out of business. You saw the numbers today. They're now down fifty-one percent year to date, having been down seven last year, and they're stuck in illiquid, 
loss making crap. Okay. And it's not just Tiger going down. They're going to take down all the other idiots that are stuck in the same rubbish. So I, I think, you know, again, we could have deflation. I totally get it. Okay. We also, if they do everything but just try to stop the deflation, maybe we get the inflation. Maybe we get things like ARC going to 10 and, you know, the, you know, Kathy Wood, it ain't oil that's going to go to 12. It's going to be your stock price is going to go to 12. Okay. When oil is at 200. So I don't know. But you, what you are not allowed to have, sorry to break it to the CNBC crowd, you're not allowed to have Goldilocks. It's just not, that option is not one of the options that you get to select. It's just not available to you. So yeah, I, but, I, I, I'm all fired up this morning, Kate. No, no, I, I love it. I, I, but so my scenario is I could see oil going to 200 while we're going into deep global recession and overall inflation data coming down. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. I agree with that. Yep, 100 percent, 100 percent. Always great to always uh, always great to hear to hear your um, to hear your comments. I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, all right, let's go back to um, we had the tourist who had a I think it was an LNG question. Tourist, did you want to ask your, your natural gas question? Yeah, that'd be awesome. Uh, great con- great content so far. Uh, we actually just had also just on the energy front, the EIA report came out and it was a massive draw. Um, obviously in shoulder season. Who, which is who, interesting. Who, who could have possibly foreseen that? Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, I agree. It's funny. It was it was quite large though. It was ten million, uh, and it was offset by a five million strategic reserve. But nonetheless, my LNG question. So right now, I guess North America LNG uh, natural gas prices have pretty much gone parabolic. Um, they're exporting a ton to Europe. Do you see this as more of a, a one-off, or do you see this as the beginning of a trend as Europe starts to build LNG? terminals to kind of get as much as they can away from russia and as much from um, north america as possible you you remind me of my grandfather you like to ask questions you know the answer to you know the answer to that question it's door number two <laughs> here we've got we're gonna, we have the emergence of a globalized uh lng market and natural gas market which you know when you got natural gas or whatever it's 50 bucks in europe and it's eight in the u.s i mean I think there's a little bit of room there, but it's in the bid-ass spread. So, no, it's it's why natural gas, I mean, short, who knows, short run, it goes up, it goes down. But, you know, and also my Canadian oil mafia friends, they can talk to you about long-term, the uh, construction of uh, terminal capacity in British Columbia and, you know, going to export a lot more of that stuff to Asia and so on and so forth. So, and, and, and the new thing, which we haven't really talked about much, um, I was at an energy dinner last night. Raymond James had their energy guys in town. We were talking, and it would seem that some of the institutional crowd, even the ESG crowd, is now starting to come around to natural gas because they realize they're screwed. And we talked about this months ago, months ago, how natural gas would be adopted by the ESG crowd because it's, you know, it's green, relatively green, yada, yada, yada. Well, guess what? Guess what? And I hope, I hope that there'll be some sense, there'll be some adults put in charge. Um, we'll get a landslide. And I don't want to get into politics, It's not, a bit, but, but just from, purely from the standpoint of energy, and you may argue Republican wouldn't do any different, but one thing that's, that's true, very obvious to me, the Biden administration, it's not that they're, I mean, you could say, well, they're doing this on purpose because they want to you know, accelerate shift to, 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 to ESG and green, all that kind of stuff. No, no, I think it's far worse. I think they're absolutely clueless, absolutely clueless as to what they're doing. We are walking into a major, major energy disaster. And coming back on KFAM's point, I would actually say, if you said to me, George, what's the most likely scenario to give us 
deflationary shock and recession. I'm not worried about WeWorks going bankrupt because they can't float their bonds. The hell with them. They should go bankrupt anyway. I think what's far more likely, and so anybody knows getting excited here, maybe he wants to weigh in, is that we just get energy to the moon, to the moon, and it just crushes everything, crushes everything. So, you know, I took down my energy exposure pretty significantly a few weeks ago. So I've kind of missed some of this last move up here. But I just took my exposure down overall because I've had, I've had an unbelievably good year. Um, but, you know, my fear would be that energy just is a runaway freight train to the upside. And just like you saw in 2008, when it, when it went in Fuego, you know, the stocks, energy stocks stopped working because the market was starting to worry about a recession and so on and so forth. So I could totally see a deflationary shock. And for me, the most likely source of that is runaway energy prices. Um, so anyway, I hope that answers your question. No, uh, it's, uh, if can I just add one more part to it, do you think sure. in a couple of years, so we obviously have LNG Canada connecting uh, Canada to Asia and then uh, I guess the U.S. is shipping big time to Europe. Do you think the natural gas market evolves into kind of like a global price? Like it just turns yes. into a yeah. global arbitrage? Similar yes. Ne- yes. Next question. No more obvious questions. You made your point. Thank you. Uh, a- 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 Ali, you got a question, Ali? Welcome. What's up? Allie? Yeah, George. Hi, hi, George. Thank you for the valuable content and the, and the debate. I just have a question on regarding emerging market credits. Um, and so sovereign debt. I mean, uh, in my opinion, this is the kind of uh, elephant in the room that we barely look at, given all the monetary action in the U.S. to lesser extent in the, in Europe. Um, we have uh, higher and higher uh, rates, uh, shortage of dollar, uh, higher energy prices. I'm thinking particularly about uh, net importers of uh, commodities, Morocco, Egypt, etc., uh, we already had Sri Lanka blew up early this year. Uh, Lebanon defaulting. I mean, uh, what's your take on emerging debt for the upcoming uh, time? Thank you. Great question. Yes. I mean, as you rightly point out, there are a lot of stresses and strains out there. I expect it's going to get worse. One thing I would say, generally speaking, emerging market balance sheets are better than they were in the last cycle. However, it's a very heterogeneous group. You've got cripples like Argentina and Turkey, which are in a really, really bad way. Other countries where, you know, they're, 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 they've, they've haven't run such large deficits in recent years. And so I don't think it's as widespread a problem as it was in the last cycles. Also, the dollar, I don't know. I mean, we understand why it's gone up. No one predicted it, really. All the smart money was bearish in the dollar. Um, I don't know what to make of the dollar right here, right now. Um, I think we, we get to a point where... As long as the Fed's talking tough, um, okay. But at some point, when we get to the point where they're going to cry uncle and they'll blink, the dollar will come off. So I don't have a strong view on the dollar right now. Some people do. I I, I just don't. Um, So we'll we'll see. We'll see. Hey, KFab, do you have a view on the dollar, KFab? Yeah, I'm kind of agnostic at this point. I think it's more uh, specific pairs rather than kind of blanket U.S. dollar. Um, Because I'm the same way. I think it's kind of hard to – game what the fed when they're when they will blink uh because we all kind of know it's coming it's a question of where that <laughs> where the pain threshold is because of the election year and the politics of it thanks for that i see a lot of friends in the room a lot of smart people in the room um come on up we're having carpathia come on up um so schmuckatelli you got the best name on twitter uh, haven't talked to you for a while if you've got any uh, insights want to update us on um 
what's going on uh, in the Ukraine. We really haven't talked about it that much recently. Some of the stuff I've been reading is, is very disturbing. Um, so we'd love to hear from you. Um, Jackson, love to hear from you what's going on in the hotel space. Uh, give us a real-time mark-to-market on, um, on what's going on what's going on in the leisure. Uh, I'm really struck by some of the comments you've made in the past about how people just don't get what's going on on the cost side uh, for companies. That and, and Jim Walker made this point in the room three months ago. You know, going back to the 70s, remember he tells a story. He was an auditor early in his career, and back in the day, we had you know FIFO and LIFO accounting, and depending because you know inflation was a thing. And now, I mean, I was really struck by your comments. Jackson about how you've had to raise prices enormously and yet none of it flows through the bottom line because the, the costs are just completely out of control. So we'd love to hear from you. So let's go to Carpathia and then Schmuckatelli. Uh, hey, Carpathia, good to, good to see you. What's up, man? Hey, man, I want to just chime in on natural gas. Um, the um, I'm an aggregator. Look, I learned a long time ago uh, to, to surround myself with the best and, and you know, then decide. Um I don't know. I'm, I, I'm sure you guys know these guys, Gehring and Rosen. Is it, I can't pronounce Rosen Craig. They put out a report in November of 20, and it was seminal because I was watching the energy markets. They did an analysis of Schlumberger versus Tech or something, and it it pushed me over the edge to get uncomfortably long energy in November of 20. I, George, I know you're there, and I'm sure there's other people, the mafia. They did something. If you don't take their report because they – uh, they did something on May 18th on the natural gas, and they did an analysis of the two, the four major fields in in the U.S. The Canadian mafia guys will know the Canadian fields, but they did a really, really sharp analysis between uh, the current fields that are still getting new production, Marcellus and Haynesville, and they compared them to the two that have already topped and rolled over. Let me find them. Uh, but in, in short, our two big fields that everyone's banking on, plenty of natural gas, are acting like Barnett and Fayetteville fields. And that's all I got. Um, they're talking about the title of the report. You can go to their website. You can hit me up, DM me. I'll send it to you. If you don't know who these guys are, they run a couple of small funds. They really, really think it through. It's the gas crisis is coming to America. And some of their arguments are pretty similar to what I saw in November of 20. And, you know, some of the numbers, I'm not going to, you know, put them out here on spaces, but they're doubles and triples possibly. So throw that out there. Thanks guys. Hit me up if you want. Yeah, hey, hey Carpathia, always good to hear from you. And, 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 and amen. I'm very familiar with their work. They do fantastic work. So I totally second, uh, second the motion. Uh, really good stuff. Really good stuff. Um, okay, so let's go to uh, Mr. Schmuckatelli, good or, or, or uh, general, colonel, sergeant. Um, great to see you. Um, been a, been a couple weeks. Uh, what's going on on your end? And maybe because you always you you and Longfall always have a perspective that that we're all lacking. Uh, maybe you know most notably share with share with us your view of what's going on in the Ukraine and in, in the Eastern Theater. Well, you know, it's faded to the background, George, and uh, yet it's some of the probably the, some of the most fear, fierce fighting of the war. Um, it's really turned into a, you know, vicious battle in eastern Ukraine. Um, the Russians have made some inroads in the Donbass, uh, but the Ukrainians are conducting a pretty effective uh, counteroffensive. 
uh, trying to take back some of their territory. I put it, I put up in the nest. Um, you know, a lot of people don't, we just think, ah, oh, you know, they get a couple pieces. Let's sue for peace. Let's have a truce. Let's go back to our normal, comfortable lives. But if you look at the amount of territory that Russia has uh, taken so far, it, it, it comprises a large part of the boot of Italy. Um, and, and so it's not a small amount of land. Um, I, I think another country is uh, the whole of Austria is another one. You can see uh, some of Shrub's uh, maps up in the nest for perspective. Um, so look, it, this is going to continue um, until further notice. The Ukrainians are not going to, uh, you know, happily cede any land to Russia and the Russians are not going to yield. This is literally a battle for Putin's uh, life. As I've stated from the beginning, uh, he needs a victory, how, whatever form that takes, um, and so I, I don't really see either side yielding. I guess the only other comment I'd make is, you know, there's been a lot of uh, conjecture. Oh, you know, they're going to, you know, uh, yeah, it just takes a bullet to Putin's head to end this whole thing. I, I just don't see that happening. Like, let's remember, you know, he's a lifelong KGB agent. You know, he, he knows the history of Russia and the Soviet Union. You know, he knows how these things end for these dictators. He's taken immense precautions. You know, we all laugh at that football length size table where he was, you know, holding meetings with Macron before the sh uh, shooting began. And um, he there will not be a close insider that will stick a shiv into Putin's side. So anyone hoping for a quick resolution uh, via the demise of Putin, I think, might be waiting longer than they think. Um, uh, that, that's the main thing that I, that I, that I have for you this morning, George. Hey, Joe, Joe, that's great. Let me ask you a question. I saw some articles recently. I didn't peruse them as much as I might, but I saw a couple of them, two or three of them recently talking about how Russia is really doing much better in, 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 in conflict and battle than was previously thought that. You know, there were all these stories, I remember a few weeks ago, about they don't have enough supplies and this, that, and everything else. But actually, they're winning. Um, and I can't remember it was the Washington Post or a couple of places where I didn't expect to see this type of article. And they were saying, and the gist of it was, Russia's actually doing better militarily than people thought they would have a few weeks earlier. Were those articles off base, or did I, mis did I misunderstand them? Yeah, no, I, I read the same articles, George. And um, those are good, credible sources. Um, um and they've, you know, checked their sources and gotten multiple uh, sources of intelligence uh, for that. And um, look, you know, I mean, the thing about Russia, and we knew this at the very beginning, a lot of the uh, a lot a lot of folks thought it was going to be a 72 hour war. You know, I mean, Russia is the largest army in Europe. Um, uh, Ukraine is the second largest army in Europe. Um I, I think one sign of hope for the Ukrainians is that the United States and Europe are, well, mostly the United States is really sending them. I mean, the gloves are off. We're sending them some of the most sophisticated weaponry on the planet. And that is going to help them, uh, especially uh, distance weapons um, that will, you know, allow them to have standoff attack capability without, you know, getting into the brutal fighting close up combat. So um, that is going to have an impact. However, you know, the Russians 
um, have been using uh, those types of weapons from the very beginning. So um, uh, you're asking if those, uh, you know, are, are the Russians uh, conducting an effective campaign? Well, insofar as they're able to control the areas of eastern Ukraine that they currently control, absolutely. And they will maintain those areas, you know, and, and Ukraine is trying to claw back some of those areas, but it's going to be a slog. And um, I think we're going to devolve into just kind of a bitter um, stalemate here through the summer. Uh, and then what then it gets really uh, precarious and interesting. Um, you know, when Europe gets cold and uh, Russia's really able to use the full force of their weapon of natural gas, it is going to be a very, very, very interesting winter in the, in, in the energy markets, I believe. So, um, you know, this summer, I think everyone is going to, like, go on their way, take their summer vacations, try to forget about the war, and then autumn is going to come. And uh, I think we're sleepwalking into an energy crisis of epic proportions because of this conflict. And I do believe it'll still be raging uh, well into autumn. Well, thanks for that. People always say I'm too negative. Well, <laughs> thanks for that, schmuck. <laughs> Joe, please stay up there because I'm sure there'll be follow-up questions. Uh, thanks for that. Let's move on to Jackson and then Hector. Jackson, what's going on, man? Nothing is translating. It's still the same. I'm actually wanted to talk about multifamily in the Southeast because I'm finally starting to see the consumer, AKA the buyer start to say no. Um, T12s are coming down. Um, so we're seeing that the consumer starting to say no to the hotel gouging, um, which is refreshing. I wanted to piggyback on uh, kayfabe talking about that PCE. And I do agree that Powell's going to pivot. Obviously, we know this, um, but I do think it's going to go on a lot longer and more aggressive in the tightening um, coming forward because I think he's starting to listen to his base. Um, and his base, to to paraphrase the great late George Carlin, he doesn't give a fuck about the, uh, about the consumer here. He does not, but he's listening to his base, his targets, his Walmarts, et cetera. And nothing is translating. We've got to, we've got to continue to move forward with the tightening. Um, PE, I've been talking about this for a while too. Uh, it's, it's, we're back to 2018, 2017, where the same decks are being rotated around. Nobody's biting um, because things have tightened so much on the PE front. So I, very concerned about uh, all of these companies that are worthless as tits on a boar hog going forward. And I don't think that there's any support coming their way. They've got to go away. They have to. I actually agree with that 100%. I think it's part of the healing process because we need to stop this malinvestment bullshit, okay? The, the sort of Kathy Wood, Tiger Global crap, okay? That is a curse on our house. That shit just has to stop. And the market will fix it. The market will fix it. Uh, so I couldn't agree with you more, Jax. Always good to hear your comments, really. I'm going to put up in the nest in a second a couple of housing charts, which uh, show what you were referring to. P please stay up there, Jackson. People always like to hear you. I'm sure there'll be some more questions. Hey, Hector, good to see you. What's going on? You got a question, Hector? Yeah, George, thanks for having me up here. The beginning when recession fears came in, all these articles popped up on my computer from Seeking Alpha and CNBC about REITs and their great defensive play. This is where you want to be. And I have some commercial buildings. I'm thinking, wait a second, rates are going up. If I had to remortgage my buildings, I wouldn't be happy about that. 
cap rates get screwed when rates go up. So I, I held back. You know, I'm not going to buy any REITs. So what is your what is your opinion on on REITs in this environment? If you're if you can answer that, and uh, is it a when we settle down in maybe six months or so, is it a good time to get into them because rates should come down over the next after six months? Like, what's your opinion on REITs? Well, I'm going to refer to Jackson, but I'll just tell you. I mean, I'm I, I, I'm you know in a very risk off type of mode right now. I want Jackson to answer that, but. I think it's probably going to depend, as always is the case, on location, location, location. You know, are you a price maker, price taker, real estates? You know, what what what, what vertical are you in? Are you multifamily? Are you in warehouses? Geographically, where are you? So I think you got to be very specific. But with that, Jackson, I yield the floor to you, Jackson. That's what I was going to ask, Hector. What specific REIT sector are you looking at? Because, again, commercial, I think, is absolutely screwed, as well as multifamily here. I don't have a time frame on jumping in on any of that um, for the foreseeable yeah. future. No, that's a great question. I mean, I, I do own like a, I'm in Canada, so I have some REITs up here that have, you know, Walmart anchor tenants and stuff like that, that I know are safe. Um, the buildings are safe. The, 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 the REIT might go down, but I, I'm no problem holding it for years and years to come. I, I imagine when I own a REIT, I pretend I'm, I own the real estate. If I like the real estate, I'll buy the REIT. Um, I did have some Dream Industrial, which is a European and Canadian warehousing, but then I knew Europe was screwed going into this. So I actually put a stop limited hit and I got out, I kept my profits and it dropped significantly more. So I was very happy to uh, protect myself there. I do like commercial more than multifamily right now in this environment, but I could be, that's only my, that's my bias. Um, so, but what I'm hearing from both of you, which is kind of where I'm thinking is play defense, don't rush to buy in um, and wait till this kind of macro settles a little bit. I do like owning some REITs. There are some decent opportunities right now, but maybe they're just not yet. Like, for example, yeah. SPG yeah. is one you could look, you could question on. Yeah, Hector, let me interrupt you. Um, as I'm reminded, I've used this line a lot from uh, the late Richard Russell. Those who are in the room have heard me use this line many times. In a bull market, the hardest thing to do is, stay, is to stay in. In a bear market, the hardest thing to do is to stay out. So... I would just say keep your powder dry. Um, if Alf is right, and I think he is, you know, you're going to start to see spreads blow out further, heightened volatility, risk assets generally sell off. I, I just, I just think you want to stay out of trouble right now. And again, the problem is, you know, whether you're talking about a reader or a stock or whatever, like, you know, with a stock, it's, you're always looking, but you're backwards looking. You say, oh, well, XYZ was at 50, now it's at 40. The PE was 25, now it's 20. Yeah, but what's you probably what's probably missing is you know if, if 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 yields are going up, which they are, and spreads are blowing out, which they are, and if earnings estimates are maybe not reliable, maybe the E's wrong. Like on the, superficially, on the, the the PE looks the lagging PE looks maybe really reasonable deal, but it's not. So I would just say keep your powder dry. If I hope that helps. Uh, no, thanks, George. Yeah, hey, hey, Tim, welcome. What's up, Tim? Tim, I'll meet yourself, please. I don't know. I guess he can't unmute himself. Okay. I see we've got some other others in the room. I don't know. Three aces. You want to say something? So, hey, um, hey, guy, guy, sir, and Dulo, come on up, man. People want to hear your technical view. Uh, oh, we got a sharp cookie in the room. Nancy Davis. Nancy, come on up. Always the more the merrier. It's a great room. We keep it fast, keep it light, uh, just helping each other. Bob Klein, good to see you. I'm just going down the list here. We've got so many good people here in the room. Uh, three aces. I'm getting you up here right now, yeah. speaker. 
going to run this room for till 11.50, let's say, another 20 minutes. So if you got a question, uh, please raise your hand. Three aces, good to see you, my friend. What's hey, up? my brother, how you doing? Um, you know, All good. Cool. Um, you know, just kind of reading the tea leaves here, um, uh, you know, again, always in the form of a question, even, you know, not, even though it may sound like a statement, uh, question to you. Um, you know, talking to Dr. Anas uh, extensively over the past couple of weeks, um, any kind of material recession here is going to create a build an inventory, um, albeit short-lived until, you know, we come out of, you know, whatever kind of contraction there is. Uh, so just, just a data point. Um, you know, the thing that built the monster, the cherry that on top of the on top of the cake of the monster for the 10 year monster that we've had here dr frankenstein the everything bubble was that nine trillion dollars of fiscal and monetary stimulus right so that's gone right um you know the federal the the federal government i think had a trillion dollar surplus in terms of tax receipts so that was a heavy drain on liquidity as uh cross-border you know continues to pound the table on um, but for all intents and purposes, it feels like the genetics of the bull market, the Tesla, Kathy, uh, you know, Bitcoin code that was, you know, that drove this craziness is still alive and well on some level. Um, you know, we're coming out of earnings season here, which was, I think, a bit of a shock. To many, and now we're already starting to see pre-announcements from the Microsofts of the world, and that's early days for that stuff. We've seen across the board unemployment, you know, every corporation from NVIDIA all the way on down Microsoft say that they're slowing or stopping hiring. And we're starting to now see the first signs of cracking in the real estate market. So um, and then you've seen these PMI numbers are just gruesome uh, regionally, but we had a small uptick in, in the ISM. Uh, Michael's here, uh, Kantrowitz. Um, you know, so just sort of, you know, connecting the dots, the weight, the, the totality of all the evidence, that kind of thing. Um, it just feels like, you know, on one hand, this monster is still alive and well, although it's not got 10 heads anymore. Maybe it's only got two. Um, and, you know, just your opinion about how this unwind should or might continue to unfold. You know, obviously, you know, we don't it doesn't look like there's a crash on the table here. But could we see a kind of lost period, let's not call it a decade just yet, is in where, you know, just a sort of slow deleveraging reversion to the mean, you know, let's call it price discovery being the goal to be back alive and well in the world, which we have none of us have seen in a long time. Um, how, how do you, you know, you know, it doesn't look like there's going to be big drama here. Could it be a thing to where... You know, like you're saying, you know, return, you know, return free risk, but it's just kind of like a, a slow, quiet thing in between GDP prints and earnings. How, how do you see the world, um, you know, because 
I don't know. It just seems like it's a bit of a mixed bag here. Like all the fundamentals are pointing to, you know, mean reversion, but you still have this goddamn monster. The fire of the monster is still burning on some some level. Yeah. So 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 three aces. I agree. I think you put it very well. You said when you said the the, the monster is alive and well. Just just just. I would I would truncate the sentence. I'd say alive. I'm not sure it's well. Um, so the monster's been injured, and when the animal gets injured, sometimes they start to act not so nice. They get ornery and whatever. Life is not linear as much as I wish it was. It's frustrating when things don't go in a straight line, but that's life. As the great John Roke, you know, I'll refer to it again, the counter trend rallies. You know, again, 2000, 2022, there were 10 counter-trend rallies of 15% or more, 15 counter-trend rallies of 10% or more. Trying to predict when and where is the fool's errand, you know, but give it a couple days to the upside, and all of a sudden the bulls come out of the woodwork, and then it goes for another day or two, and then it crashes again. So I think we're in this sort of interregnum right here where, you know, the market overachieved on the downside. Let's be honest about this. I think I tweeted this out a week or two ago. Like, I didn't even think the market was going on that quickly. So it can chop and flop, and sure. And, like, right now, maybe it seems, it feels, and I hate feelings, like maybe it's we're sort of in a more placid period. But all it's going to take is something to happen, and we get it down 5% day, and I'm going to get people, again, reaching out to me with DMs and text messages. Can't we have a space? Can't we have a space? Everyone's beholden to the tape. And, you know, to me, what blew me away, and I, 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 Shrub's not here, but – he follows the the, the uh, fund flow statistics so so well. You know, you had that twenty billion inflow into equities last week. That's just mind boggling. So the minute people think, oh, so you're saying there's a chance? Can't miss that. FOMO is alive. It's not totally dead. It's alive. And so you know, my view is, you know, the the, the lessons are presented, presented until learned, and the positioning and the flows complicate the situation enormously you know michael green credit to him he's been you know pointing out the the the, the passive bid to the market and that's certainly been the case the last couple of weeks but you know prior few months didn't really help you much um and so yeah i, I think direction is down trying to trying to like say well you know is it gonna have 10 percent, 20 percent, 30 percent? how quickly i don't know i come back to you know my rallying cry again return free risk it's like if you knew the direction was flat to down Expected returns negative, and whether you're going to lose, you know, twenty percent in one month or five percent in twelve months, like I don't know. I suspect it's more the the latter than the former, but like, why would you own that? Period. And so I I just think there's there's just so many ways to lose, and the potential downside. And you said Cantro's in here. I don't see him. He's got to come up here, and he can he can do it better than I can. He he changed his picture. Mike, can you please change your goddamn picture back? Or, I couldn't or, 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 for a week either. Three aces. Send him a message. Tell him to come up here. Wait, okay, wait, 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 wait. Did, did Cantro do a sex change thing? Is he still a guy? He or did. He now? What? He's got that. He's got that Excel spreadsheet looking green with the red on. Oh the top man, the he's trying to right. hide from us. I see it. I, see I know. It. I couldn't find him for a week because he changes. Uh, he's trying to sneak in him. here. Maybe, maybe people. <laughs> Cantro, you got you got to come up. Come on, man. You can't do this. You can't hold down on me. So anyway, <laughs> also, Nancy, come on, Nancy, come on up too. Meet George. Yeah, they're, 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 all, they're all hiding. I'm too bearish. I know. I'll be nice to you, Nancy. It's the first time. I won't bite you. Don't worry. So George, anyway, George, so, could I reference uh, what, what Three Aces asked? Go, go, go for it. Go for it. 
Yeah, so I think some of this is something that George has talked about a lot, which is, uh, you know, price is one part, but time is a huge component of these uh, recessionary bear markets. So, um, you know, even if we're entering a recession, we're very likely right at the tipping point in the U.S. at least. Uh, So I think it's important to remember, I mean, um, Enron didn't go bankrupt until like eight months into that recession or seven months into that recession. Um, you know, Fannie and Freddie didn't tip until six, seven months. Lehman wasn't until nine months into that recession. So, you know, these things are not uh, certain as far as when the tide's going out and things start blowing up. Or do we know which ones are going to be the big ones, right? So you had Bear, you had Fannie and Freddie blow up. All these things happen. And why was it Lehman that tipped us into the, the acute phase of panic, right? So we've had things starting to blow up. We've had Luna and, you know, George has been all over the tether debacle and all that stuff. So there's all these things that are popping up that are pretty obvious. There's the Tesla debacle. I mean, there's a lot of things that we kind of already know that are, you know, bubbling to the surface. Which one's going to be the one that incites the acute panic, the the kind of tipping point of, of the liquidation phase of the bear market? Uh, who knows? I, that That's kind of a randomness part of these chaotic periods. Um, but we're already we've already had a pipeline of all of this stuff, all the zombie companies. I mean, it's they're, they're, it's just a matter of when. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, and let me just let me just chime in one more thing on that. You know, three aces. The on the view, you know, the moral obligation, of Mister Market, is to confound as many people as possible. The really sinister, nefarious way to screw people would kind of be what you're talking about. Like it's too obvious to just crash the whole thing. What if we just did this chop and flop and grind? I mean, bear markets, as KFAB was saying, time is what really kills people, right? So what if we just did this chop and flop thing where there's nothing mellow? I mean, we're spitballing. Nobody knows. But I'm just going to make a scenario for you. You never get the headline grabbing, oh, this just went bankrupt type of trade, right? Instead, it's just drip, 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 down revision and earnings. Inflation doesn't go away as quickly as you want. Interest rates are flat to up. And it just grinds. And it just grinds. And all the momentum shit, will get totally destroyed because people own that stuff for one reason and one reason only because it's going up related, bro. And if it loses that quality, then it ceases to be uh, an item of interest. And so the point of it is you just get staring at pain for you. In your world, three think about this. You never get the drama. You never get the breathless morons on CNBC talking about the disaster du jour. It's just this grind. You know, it's up, it's down, it's up, it's down. Oh, it's going up. Oh, everyone pilots. Everyone buys the local high. Then it goes down, everyone pukes the local low, and yada, 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 yada. And so, like, let's say the S&P's, I don't know where it is, 4,000 today. I didn't even look this morning. Let's just say, you know, a year from now, the market's at 3,800. It's not my prediction, but I'm just making a scenario for you. Where the the headline soundbite return, not that big deal. You're down 5%, big deal. Like, like, so what? But, but, in that context, in that scenario under the hood, you get some of the same or the same crap that we've been seeing so far. In other words, Kathy... She's 44 today. She's she's 25. Maybe she's a teenager. So the real companies will actually do okay. And the Tiger Global, Kathy Wood, Chamath, Garbage, all that stuff just gets continued to get eviscerated, especially as retail disappears from the market. So the market itself, who knows? Nobody knows. But I'm just saying it doesn't have to be a lights out, you know, S&P 2500 affair. It might be something just which, you know, is far more uh, nuanced, but nevertheless, is it going to destroy people who are just on the wrong part of the playing field pursuing 
liquidity-driven speculative garbage. I hope that helps. Yeah, just one quick follow-up before we move. you move on to the other, uh, Nancy and Michael. I'm just curious, George. Fifteen uh, percent of the Russell 3000, 4,500 companies cannot service their debt from from cash flow. It is is are the capital markets closed off to companies like that, or do you still? Think yeah, no, they're, they're no, they're, no, they're closed, and I actually think they, they, that's part of the healing process. I mean, listen, Michael K will have the number. I don't have it right in front of me, but or one of the Kane Royal Mafia guys will hit me on this. We're interested here in accuracy, not precision. I think total domestic spending on oil and gas last year was $60 billion, something like that. And it was 90 or 50. Let's just say it's 60. I'm just making a number up, okay? I think total amount of money invested in Tesla call options was in the trillions. Think about that. Think about that. The whole system's turned upside down. We have to stop this insanity. This is good. This is good what's happening. Enjoy it, three aces. Michael K, what's up, my friend? Good to see you. And why are you so sneaky now with the, you change your avatar? What's going on here? Hey, George. Uh, well, uh, I don't even know what's called an avatar, but whatever that well, whatever. is. Well, whatever. Are you, are you like in the witness protection program now because you're too bearish? Like, why are you hiding from us? Well, not hiding. I, I, I'm actually putting forth the uh, the framework for understanding where the hell we are and where we're going. <laughs> Go for it, man. I love and, uh, when you talk bearish. I love when you talk bearish to me. Go for it, man. Uh, the acronym of HOPE, which is Housing Orders, Profits, and Employment. And you know, this is something we threw together years ago on our team to look at you know, how different segments of the economy and markets react to tightening. And so you know, six months ago, everyone was freaking out about inflation and interest rates. Now people are starting to freak out about housing, you know, even though it's been weakening for over a year you look at the uh, NHB index, which peaked well over a year ago, and it's down 30% or so. Uh, we've seen PMIs come down, notwithstanding yesterday's ISM number. You know, nothing goes straight in a straight line, like you said. And now we're seeing profit warnings. And next, we'll see employment warnings. So, you know, for people that are kind of trying to figure out where, where, where we are in the cycle, where we are in the market, bear market, what 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 should, what should you be looking for to feel worse or better about the world going forward? That framework lays it out perfectly because it's the way the economy slows down and picks up 100% of the time. So it's never different. And for the reasons the economy goes up and down, it's never different. It's always tightening and easing. And we've got a hell of a lot of tightening and it's all flowing through. So you know, I, don't, I don't, you know, I have no idea what the market's going to do next week or tomorrow or today or, you know, the next two weeks. But, yeah, I think we're, we're in for a rough patch until we see a bottom in the economy. 19 out of the last 21 declines in the market of 10% or more took place, uh, didn't bottom until we were within a couple of months of the bottom of the economy in PMIs. And we're, we're nowhere near that. So, yeah, everyone's saying, like, we're looking for... Oh, we need a white, white, white right, keep, going. Sorry, keep, with... keep, what, what keep going. I'm sorry. Keep going. Keep going. Keep talking. Well, this idea that like we need a we need a capitulation in the market and you know, wipe out like what does that mean? Like that doesn't make the economy stop getting worse. It doesn't necessarily it doesn't make the Fed pivot. Stocks get hit. Okay, they re, it's it's because they've reacted to some bad data. And if we get more bad bad data, you'll see more more pain. Um, but I, I think we're going to see you know, our general view is that between earnings season, we're going to see weaker economic data and weaker inflation data. And that'll 
support markets between earnings season. And then when we come to earnings season, we're going to see the markets roll back over because bad earnings is bad news. Thanks, Michael. Always on point as usual. Please stay there. I'm sure we have a lot of questions. we got a lot of really good sharp cookies up here. We'll go to Bob Klein and Nancy Davis, then Tim, and then ZAM. Hey, Bob, my friend, good to see you. What's going on? Hey, George. Just an observation, and love to hear your comments from everyone. I, following on your point that this could very well be just a grind lower, uh, b- bouncing back and forth, of course, with bear market rallies, the you know, look at copper today, uh, 4.54 up 21 cents. Oil pushing higher. So if Powell's going to slow play this, as he is insistent on doing, the markets are saying, okay, fine, we're gonna we're gonna keep uh, putting upward pressure on commodity prices, and bond prices will will continue to go lower. Yields will continue to go higher. We grind this way, back and forth in equities, and we grind this way until things crack up. Uh, that's how I see it. I think that uh, we'll, you know, again, that they, they, they think they can just uh, control things by, by slow playing it. Markets, you know, will, will, you know, will, will put it right in their face in the sense that we'll see commodities continue up, bonds continue lower, uh, yields higher until, until this thing cracks up, kind of like 73, 74-ish uh, scenario uh, could could very well be how this plays out. Hundred percent, Bob. I think you're spot on. Entirely plausible. I mean, my view is, you know, Powell can pay pay us now, pay us later, but one way he's going to pay us. The market will do what he refuses to, or one only wants a slow roll, as you put it. That's a good phrase. The market will, will the market will do it for us. So, um, I think you're spot on, Bob. Really like that. George, um, can I ask, can I ask a question on that point? Go for it. Go for it. So how do I'm just curious, how do commodities uh, hold up in this situation where the market's kind of doing the job of the Fed, whatever it may be, and the economy is definitely going to slow down, as Michael was saying? Um, isn't that a self-correcting mechanism for commodities to eventually uh, pull back significantly at some point? Bob, you want to answer that? Want me to answer that? Yeah. No, I'll, I'll take a shot and then you go ahead. I, I think... I think that's right, but the question is: I think the market, the commodity markets, are going to probe higher until what you say happens. So, uh, until rates get high enough, or until there's enough damage done, I think commodities just keep probing higher until the Fed gets serious, or until something breaks. So, that's how I see it playing out. I I agree with that, and and I think what will happen. as oil continues to cycle up, um, it's just going to put further pressure on, and, and food prices cycle up, it's just going to put further pressure on um, real incomes and, and, and bring forward um, bring forward the economic slowdown or recession. So I think the outcome is, is, is in the end, is clear. Um that, you know, if, if, if Powell doesn't slow the economy, to Fed, and by the way, again, this, this this arrogance, this idea that the economy is some, you know, Boeing 777 jetliner and just push a button here, do this, do that, and um, it can all be so controlled. The sheer arrogance, the hubris, I mean, there are long lead times between, you know, changes in monetary policy and changes in the economy. And it, 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 it's not so simple. And so, 
my fear is, I think a real fear is, you're just going to continue to see real incomes get increasingly pressured. You're seeing this in the retail data. I mean, inventories are through the roof. Yeah, nominal sales are up, but real sales are down, blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, either Jerome Powell can discover his Interpol Volcker, or if he doesn't, the markets will take management in their own hands. Either way, we're going to get to the same place in the end, in my view. It's just a question of sequencing. Thank George, you. George, Sorry. can I offer a dissenting yeah. voice on that? Yeah, please. Um, so I, I think uh, the tenor of markets shifted in mid-April towards the uh, growth scare slash recession trade. Yes. Uh, so that's when long-term rates peaked. Uh, if you look at relative to this discussion on commodities, if you go through uh, the base metals, for example, they all you know have rolled over quite a bit since mid-April at the same time frame. So, um, you know, copper's rallying right now, but the, you know, it's still quite a ways from what would be a, a, a high. Um, so you look at zinc, you look at tin, you look at aluminum. I mean, you kind of go through the commodity space. So when, when people talk about commodities generally, and they look at the big indices, obviously the, the energy space tends to dominate. But if you kind of like in 08 and these other economic slowdowns and these transition phases into recession, you, know, you usually get kind of the breadth of, economically sensitive commodities start to roll over and and, and as i said since mid-april that has become pervasive outside of energy right so um excellent point i actually have a graph for that i'll put it um if anyone's interested uh, dm me i will e dm me um your email address and i will send you a presentation i put together yesterday it's got a lot of good slides in it hey k say can anyone can you guys hear me hello can I just can I just ask back on kayfabe uh, a, a separate point? No, um, no, 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 no. You, okay. wait, wait your turn, please. No. Um, the um, if if you if there's a great graph, I've got it shows three different commodities. This is all in the same chart. It shows ag, uh, base metals. Just what kayfabe was saying. It shows ag, base metals, and energy. And energy is up and to the right, big time. Ag still drifting up. And as KFA rightly points out, base metals sold down pretty hard. And so there's been a huge divergence there, base metals being the most economically sensitive of the uh, of the three. So it's a very interesting divergence. Um, I don't really make anything of the move in copper today. It's just one day, whatever. I mean, but to me, the fact that oil and food have, have remained so firm in the face of what's really interesting, that oil and food have, have remained so firm in the face of um, increasing concerns about the global economy. To me, that's really interesting. So, all right, let's move on. Nancy, uh, good to see you first time. Um, it's, Thanks for uh, having me. I, I, I'm a secret admirer. I see you on CNBC and whatever. I don't know how you put up with those knuckleheads, but we, <laughs> we, 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 we try to do long-form discussions in these rooms where I actually can have a serious interaction. You see a lot of – we have, just so you know, this is the smartest room on Twitter, period, because I have the smartest audience. So um, – I haven't heard, I haven't seen you on Bubble Vision lately because I stopped watching. So glad it's the first time we actually meet. Um, you're probably listening to all this dribble for the last hour or two. What are your thought or thoughts? Comment. Talk about whatever you want to. Whatever, whatever, whatever you think is interesting right now. Well, I'm I'm brand new to the Twitter community. I just joined uh, less than a month ago, so it's really uh, it's really awesome to be to be part of this call. And I appreciate um, you guys reaching out and the warm welcome. Um, I've been holding out on joining Twitter for years, and I'm glad I did. 
Um, I think the one thing I would just chime in with uh, in terms of diversification, market expectations, you know, the Fed is just starting to unwind liquidity. Um, the quantitative tightening just started yesterday, June 1st, but the first roll off um, for Treasury maturities doesn't start until June 15th. And I think it's very important to look at what you um, what all the people hold in terms of fixed income, because I expect fixed income ball is going to increase as the silent hand is removed, this everyday buyer of the market. You know, this Fed still has caps, um, but I'm particularly concerned about the um, agency MBS market. Um, you can see uh, it's on the New York Fed's website. I can send it around in a tweet later so you can see, but it's not the most liquid market. And the SOMA holdings, which is what, you know, the Fed has been buying in QE, they've been active saying they're not going to hold anything other than treasuries. And it's ginormous. You know, the 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 balance sheet is almost uh, almost nine trillion dollars. And having that liquidity being taken out of the system at the same time as tightening policy rates and at the same time as inflation from a lot of non-demand driven sources is a uh, is is definitely disconcerting. So I think it's a you know I am the the portfolio manager for the the iVol ETF which is uh, the quadratic interest rate volatility and inflation hedge ETF so I'm I'm you know definitely a believer in owning fixed income vol as a diversifier but any place you have mortgages you are short fixed income volatility and I just wanted to make that point on the call so people are aware because just think about it homeowners are along the option to prepay if you own the financial mortgage, your short options to home, it's called prepayment risk or um, sometimes negative convexity. But it's just it's a pretty dangerous time with the fragile liquidity in the markets and with this uh, this balance sheet unwind just starting. So, Nancy, that really appreciate that. So for those of us who are just like dumb equity guys and don't get in the weeds on all the uh, inside baseball fixed income stuff. Um, so let's, let's consider this fixed, in, fixed income kindergarten, like dumb equity guys like me. Right. So for an equity person, um, what are the most use aside from the point you just made in terms of just like more obvious things, like, you know, you think long bond rates are going up. Do you think spreads are going to widen? I mean, do you have any strong views on some of these other, um, bigger variables in the in fixed income land? Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily a directional call on interest rates because I can absolutely see long dated yields uh, going higher, but short dated yields going lower. Um, I think Alf was talking about that with the steepening of the yield curve. The yield curve is negative. It's actually below zero. Um, and I do think that will steepen. And I think it's kind of cool because you don't have to take a bet on the absolute level of rates. But um but yeah, I, I'd be happy, like DM me. I'm just brand new to Twitter. I have a, a noon meeting, so I have to jump off for that, but I'd be happy to follow up and, and really appreciate all the okay. since uh, I've been on since. So Nancy, just one thing. So as, as, it, as it goes from the Bronx, you can't leave. No, seriously. You can leave with one condition that we're going to have you back uh, in this space and you're going to be the guest speaker. So we'll, I, we, as long as we understand that, you can go. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. I really All right. appreciate that. Have a good day, guys. Thanks, Thank Nancy. You. Thanks. All right. Let's go to, uh, let's, hey, Tim, you, you had your hand up. You haven't been saying anything. Tim, did you want to say something? Tim? 
Tim, if you don't if you don't answer me, I'm throwing you out. You're up as a speaker, so I'm going to throw you out. Sorry, going to move you from speakers. All right, uh, is that okay? So let's see, Schmuck, Jackson, Three Aces, Cantro, right, Brian, uh, welcome. You know, we got Matt Cox. We got to get you up here. I want to get the crypto update. So, Brian, welcome you got, to state. Brian, you got welcome. Alexander. You got Alexander. Yeah, got to get Alexander too. So let's get Alexander up here. So we'll do Brian, and then um, Brian. Uh, welcome, and then uh, Matt Cox and or Alexander, you want to come on up, put in your two cents. So, Brian, what's up, man? Brian, please unmute yourself, Brian. Shit, sorry about that. I didn't even know. But, yeah, I, I don't have a question. I was just listening. I'm, I'm working at the same time, so go ahead. Okay, so Matt Cox, my friend, good to see you. Haven't talked for a couple of weeks. A lot's been going on, and uh, you and I spoke a week or two ago on the whole Luna nonsense and Terra. Uh, give us the update. What's going on in crypto world This is from, from where you sit? Oh, uh, it's the same old insanity, basically. There's, there's not really anything new except prices when, I mean, Bitcoin is being fraudulently held at like 30K. Like they, they won't let it fall um, because if they let it fall, you know, Michael Saylor and uh, and these are like Bukele, the president of El Salvador, they're, they're going to be in big trouble. Elon Musk, all these guys, they're not going to let it fall particularly deep at least not Bitcoin. They're selling off these other coins, you know, to, you know, sacrificing them to keep Bitcoin alive, but they don't even need to do that. So that's just my observation. Like everyone has been calling for, you know, Bitcoin going very low, but it's a very fraudulent market. The structure is extremely dysfunctional and, and asymmetric. Got it. So, um, you, th- you think, I mean, I know trying to predict these things is impossible, but do you think the day is drawing near where something's going to break? Uh, yeah, I mean, day by day, it's getting closer to they can't keep it going. Right. You know, with, they have no liquidity. Basically. So they right. have to keep the Fogazi going. And what's happening, maybe, um, I know in the past you've been very helpful in explaining um, how many coins the miners are producing and therefore... The amount of more fiat that has to come into the system for the to keep the price sustained, what and, and then the hash rates, all that kind of stuff. So, could you just give me a color an update? Give us an update on what's yeah, going the, the on. Yeah, you know, what, what, what does it cost you to make a coin in 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 the profit margin? And are the miners inclined to just sell all the coins they produce or hanging on to them? What, what's going on? Yeah, so there's nine nine hundred coins being produced every day. Those coins have to be sold to pay electricity bills. That's why people call it a Ponzi scheme because you need new money coming in. Uh, to buy those coins to pay the electricity bills. So the old people who have Bitcoin already can, you know, new money to pay old money, basically. So that's so that's around like high 20 millions right now a day. So, and you need cash, like real US dollars coming in to pay electricity bills. And, and what's been happening for a long time is that uh, the miners, there's like more than 20 of them that are publicly traded. They can always, uh, you know, dilute their shares or they have been taking loans to avoid selling the, the coins that they mine. But but that gig is slowly drying up. Like I, I read something the other day that, that they were, you know, in critical condition on their loans. Right. So just putting numbers on it, if, if there's 900 coins a day at, at 30,000 round figures, let's say it's $27 million a day or $800 million a month, meaning... 800 million a month of fiat has to come into the system. 
if they if they go to sell eight hundred million, just has to come in to sustain the price. Is that is that fair? Yeah, because it's like a difficulty adjustment and stuff, so it's more or less around there. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, so and as then you have all the other coins, you have Ethereum that's also using the same. So, right. so Ethereum that's probably you know ten million as well. So you have so, the whole ecosystem. It's you know it's bleeding heavily. So so if you look at the whole ecosystem, the amount of coins being manufactured. You'd be upwards of what a billion, a billion five in, in, in fiat that has to come in every month just to sustain yeah. the price, something yeah. like that. Okay. And any further thoughts on the regulatory side? I know we normally don't talk crypto in these rooms, but it's 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 all out today because it's 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 you know become a high profile. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sam Bankman-Fried said that he's going to spend a billion on the next election. So, um, right. I mean, I, I don't know what we're supposed to infer from that. That's I know crazy. What I that's crazy. That's crazy. Wow. Wow. Just wow. Thanks for that, uh, Matt Cox. Always, always, uh, always good to hear from you. Let's go to stay up there, please. Let's go to Invest 2021. Hey, what's up, Invest 2021? What do you got? Hey, George. How are you doing? Uh, thank you for these spaces. Uh, quick question. So what do you think of the residential uh, real estate market? I know there's talks about REITs and whatnot, and I know residential is local, but everything went up almost together now some places went up more than others but it was almost became a national market um so i just wanted some feedback on that a lot of people are saying it's not going to be 2008 all over again i I can understand that but it's just odd that prices can still stay high for this long again i'll defer to anyone else who wants to talk i I think it's a very jackson's gonna defer to jackson i just say it's a very local business and it really depends where i'm in westchester county outside new york in a very affluent community People paying cash doesn't really matter. You go into other markets, people got to get uh, financing. It does matter. So I, I just think that there's downside risk to real estate from here. Um, but again, it varies very much, very much so by by um, by market. So Jackson, I think you know more about this than I, Jackson. Yeah, a lot of it's driven by the NOO, which I just tagged you and Aces in and threw it up in the in the nest. It's the non-owner occupied speculators. I was just in Lexington, Kentucky uh, over the holiday weekend, and everybody you talk to says the same thing. The rich guys came in, put a little money into a place, and want to do an Airbnb, but that trade is so crowded that it's drowning on its own weight because everyone did it. So there's an unlimited supply of Airbnbs that three, four, 500 and 300 for cleaning, et cetera. But again, none of that's translating to the bottom line. And these guys are getting scary. They're getting jumpy. And uh, so the supply narrative is so distorted because of the NOO. It's 37 to 38% of all homes bought since uh, March of 2020 are basically non-owner occupied. And that's speculation. That's more of the speculators. Wait, 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 Jackson, I fell out of my chair. You said since since spring of 2020, last two years, 37% of all the homes bought are by non-owners, not, not non-occupied, NOO, it's, it's non-occupied owners? That's correct. And I'll get that data and send it over to you. Are you kidding me? Out. Holy I, shit. I'm hey, not. D- dude, it's all you... Airbnb speculative. I mean, come and, on. And by, and by the put way, an guys, Airbnb, I... put an Airbnb in. There's, there's, there's probably 10 to 1 what there was two years ago in Westchester County, et cetera. Everyone went into the same trade. Jackson, just something anecdotal from my end too. Um, I'm in here in Los Angeles. I actually have a house that I've I've been renting out for a while. The the tenant left. 
I put it back on the market. I have cash flow not from the house, so it's not even an issue. I don't need it to live. I have other cash flow. I do a job. But, um, you know, I put it on the market, and then Airbnb came. And the, the person is a small person. They have several houses like that. They said, we pay over. I looked over their financials. No way I, I realized they could afford this. It almost seemed like a Ponzi scheme, but I didn't care. I just needed to rent it out, have someone there to make sure it's maintained. And um, any second now, I feel like they won't be able to pay the rent. And they have three houses. And they built three houses like this just from subletting from other people above market, by the way. Absolutely. A hundred percent. NOOs till the end. It is a mess. Jackson, you get the award of the day. I just, I had no, I am, I can't say I'm shocked. I just never thought about it. That just blows my mind. It's insane. It's a golden age of fraud. Nothing should uh, come as a surprise. You know what's funny too, Jackson? I, I was up. I had to go up to Boston last weekend. I went up to see the Celtics play, and um, I've never, in all my years, seen it was it was seen such a tight uh, lodging market. I think there were a whole bunch of graduations going on, so it was like next to impossible to find to find a room. But I finally found one. But what struck me, Jackson, and you tell maybe you could add some color to this. Just in general, when you look at Airbnb now. The amount of extras, and this may be what you're talking about, they've added on to things. Like it used to be, okay, you find a room for, you know, just pick a room. I don't know. You find a room for 200 bucks, and maybe all in it's like 250 with the taxes and the service fees and all this sort of nonsense. But now the 200 is not 250 The 200 is like 350 Where you find a room for like 100 and it would have been 130 No, it's now like 200 I mean, they've just piled on COVID fees and service charges and special prices, taxes, because they like you so much. I mean... I mean, is there so what's going on with Airbnb? They haven't they, they're under intense pressure to get their profit margins up. Like, where the hell? I mean, it's worse than Ticketmaster now. You actually look at like what the rack rate is supposedly the list price, and then when you go to check out what you're paying, it's I, I got a heart attack looking at it. So, you got can you shed some light on this, Jackson? Yeah, absolutely. It's resort fee, COVID fee. Uh, waiters, Dennis Bill is on there. I mean, it's just all added in and baked in. But again, it's not translating because all those fees get dispersed. It's gotten so bad that at the top tier resorts, I talked to the bartenders, and again, you're adding 21% gratuity um, to all the bills. A lot of people aren't seeing that they're double tipping, etc. But what these are, what isn't going, it isn't going to the team member. It's going to the company. Because it's got to get baked into all these different fees, et cetera. And then by the time the waiter or bartender gets that tip, it's nowhere near 21%. So, again, those guys are starving. And, uh, and, and the, the perception, and we've lowered our standards so much. I mean, that's what I keep harping about, too. We've lowered our standards. We go to the steakhouse, and the first thing the waiter tells you is, you know, it's going to be a little longer because of our kitchen staff, etc. but we're still going to pay $80 for the steak. I mean, it's just everything is a mess. But the NOO, we're going to keep harping on that, is just ridiculous. The speculators, just as Invest just said, I mean, these guys are underwater. They're tits up, and they all crowded the same trade. Jackson, how much of that was uh, the big boys like BlackRock? Blackstone, if I'm not mistaken. I'm sorry, like Blackstone. Eight, well, yeah, no, I got what you meant there, brother. Um, was like eight and a half of the 37. I mean, they're also in the same boat because they crowded the trade. So 
you're you're stealing from Paul to pay for Peter. I mean, it just doesn't work at some point. You've got, you know, 30 Airbnbs in a subdivision and nobody's living in them. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's scary shit. And, and Jackson, just this, this is, this is, uh, it's a new favorite subject for today. So these Airbnbs, you also see in a lot of places where towns just don't allow it. Like I was going to go to the Jersey shore and there's some towns you can you find plenty of them. And some that just, you don't see any. And is there a lot, a lot of discrimination based on uh, what the town's up to? Some places they're allowed, some places they're not. We've actually fought against, you know, with our hotels trying to keep them out of certain areas. But there's a huge black market for it, George, unfortunately. And there's, you know, they're posted on different social media sites, et cetera. They might not be Airbnb, but it's, you know, Jimmy's Rental or something along those lines. So they're still getting it. But it's it's getting too expensive. The consumer's finally starting to say no. Right. They can get around that too, by the way, George. Just um, as you know, it's some most places the short term it's like thirty or something days, and they could just list it on the website for thirty days, and then someone calls them and says, "Hey, I need it for two weeks," and they work around it like that. Um, I've seen that happen here in LA a lot. I remember a couple summers ago, I went to Atlantic City. Believe it or not, not doing that again. And um, they were telling Atlantic City, which is totally screwed up. And Jackson, maybe you got a sightline on that, given all the what's going on with the casinos and everything. But there the the city council which is controlled by the business interests obviously they just implemented they put in this is like two summers ago they 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 passed some crazy tax some usurious tax which like all the airbnb people had to pay it was basically the hotel lobby saying you know going to war with airbnb people and um with with the individuals and so there was going to be some outrageous tax i forget how much it was that they were going to put on all these rentals so i don't know it seems to be very political very political uh, item. I mean, Jackson, what, what's your experience? Is it, what, is it, is, is, is the pattern's pretty disparate across municipalities? I mean, is it vary a lot from place to place? I think it's all falling in the same line now. In the beginning, a couple years ago, three, four years ago, like you're talking about, it was more regional. I think now it's just got, it's so extreme. It really is. It's, it's disturbing. <laughs> wow. All right. Uh, any other questions? Otherwise, I think we're going to shut this room down. We've been at it for two hours and ten minutes. This has been an awesome room, uh, as always. Alfie was great, and uh, I love the pace of the room. So many smart people. I just love coming to this room and learning from all you you folks. This is awesome. Um, I'm going to be away for a week, but maybe I'll do a room from wherever I am. We'll see. Um, meantime, just, you know, do your homework. Uh, there are no quick fixes. This is a marathon, not a race. Um, and thank all you guys. And you, you wouldn't you wouldn't be going to San Francisco, would you, George? Why would I go there? Oh <laughs> no, 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 oh no, no. Okay. Oh yeah, I forgot. I forgot. No. So I'm hoping. I'm actually going out of the country. Um, I'm hoping to. Um, if anyone wants to meet me on June 16 in Boston, if there's a game six, I'll be there. But next week I'm away. So. Um, but no, uh, but KFAB, who's going to win? You got, you got any view on the series? Uh, I think it's a tough one. I I, I think it's like one of those coin flippers. Yeah, I agree. There'll probably be something we can't foresee, like an injury or something like that, that's going to tilt the, tilt the uh, scales. Who knows? All right, everyone. This has been awesome. Thanks, guys. Do it. See you again before too long. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>